I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare. Today on Lawfare No Bull. On December 1st in Fulton County, Judge Scott McAfee heard arguments from the state and several of the 15 defendants on a number of motions related to First Amendment concerns, the scheduling of an eventual trial, discovery matters, and general and special demurs. Judge McAfee did not immediately rule on any of the motions. All rise. Thank you all. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome, everybody. We are on the record again with 23 SC 188947, State of Georgia versus Donald John Trump, Ray Stalling Smith, Robert Cheeley, and David James Schaefer. If we could start by having counsel who are appearing and arguing today introduce themselves for the record and for each uh, defendant, if we could confirm whether your client has expressly waived their presence here today. So let me start with the state. Good morning, Judge Nathan Wade, special prosecutor here for uh, the state. Um, and with me arguing this morning, we expect uh, Deputy Will Wooten, um, special prosecutor John Floyd, um, as well as potentially executive uh, assistant Asia Young and myself. All right. Thank you, Mr. Wade. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, Steve Sadow and Jennifer Little for President Trump. All right. And he Thank you, sir. I think Mr. Smith next or whoever. I'm just going in the order of the indictment. Uh, Sam Young, Amanda Clark Palmer, Bruce Morris. We're all here on behalf of Mr. Smith. We waive his presence. And on behalf of Mr. Cheeley. Richard Rice, Chris Anolowitz, and Wayne Beckerman on behalf of Mr. Cheeley, especially Wayne. Thank you, sir. And Mr. Schaefer. Good morning, Your Honor. Craig Gillen, Anthony Lake, Holly Pearson, on behalf of David Schaefer, and Mr. Schaefer, where waves his presence here today. All right. Thank you, Mr. Gillen. All right. Before we dive in because I know we do have a lot of ground to cover today. I think just to cover a few points, I know the state had filed a motion asking for a few things um, relevant to today. First of all, I think the, as we'd been emailing back and forth, the agenda is proposed by defense counsel was agreeable to me. And I think for the most part, the state, so we can use that as our uh, roadmap. Uh, however, the state had filed a motion asking to limit the argument to what's in the briefing and my reaction there just for efficiency purposes so we don't have to come back for maybe some minor argument is that uh, I don't plan to limit anyone's argument, uh, but if anyone wants to submit post-hearing briefing on any point raised today, they're certainly welcome to do so. And I certainly didn't plan on ruling from the bench on any of these uh, substantive issues and we can always reconvene if necessary. So. Frankly, I think that anything's fair game and we can come back or brief, have supplemental briefing if we need to. Any issues on that before we go on to the next thing, Mr. Wooten? Judge, if I can just clarify what we were not asking the court to limit the argument. We were asking the court to limit kind of what can and can't be adopted. Um, and we've kind of reduced that to three categories. First, we've got some adoptions that have come in uh, by some of the co-defendants seeking to adopt motions that have already been ruled on. And so there's, at, as far as the state's concerned, nothing to adopt. The motion's not pending anymore. 
if they want to raise those issues again, it's our position that they would need to file their own motion because that motion is not. Again, so that, I mean, I think that that was my main reaction to that is what would stop someone from just copying and pasting that and then refiling it? Is there, is there really any substantive difference? At this point, the motion's deadline, we're still in the thick of it. Judge, the state's position on that is just that there's nothing for the court to rule on. I mean, they're adopting motions that have been ruled on, so there's nothing to rule on anymore. I mean, if they want to reopen the issue, they'd have to reopen the issue by filing a new motion. Um, I agree, they can't just copy and paste, but the issue's not live anymore. The issue's been ruled on. It's, it's, there's nothing to adopt is our position. All right. Well, I think I tried to, because we were, uh, based on the speedy trial requirements, having to limit our focus just to the two co-defendants, I think I, I don't know if I made it express on the record, but I think I made it in the orders that any of the rulings we had made were confined strictly to those defendants who we did. And so I think that any of the arguments that people adopted are still, again, fair game for them. And so if they don't want to more narrowly tailor it to their client, uh, I think that's their choice. Um, I don't think the state would be required to refile a brief just changing the heading, but I just, again, for, um, for clarity on the docket, at least, I don't think adopting a prior motion from another defendant that hasn't been ruled on is something I view as a dead motion. So just an FYI for everyone. So anything that gets adopted, I think we do have to formally uh, rule on and, and handle and address. And then just one other thing in the same vein, Judge, we take exception to adoption um, of motions involving counts that the defendant seeking to adopt is not charged in. Sure. So if there's a motion that's challenging, you know, count five and defendant A is not charging count five, again, nothing for them to adopt. And we would just ask that the court not permit them to argue on those motions where they're seeking to, they essentially don't have standing. Sure. I think that that's, uh, that makes sense. And to the extent any of the motions that are adopted that go beyond what a particular defendant is charged with, uh, I don't think that would be covered by the adoption, but I think that's, we have to take that motion by motion. Thank you, Judge. Um, on the, on the issue of the, of the prior order, I know that a lot of the things we may be talking about today were addressed uh, with code, with the prior co-defendants. Um, however, I think defense counsel have raised new aspects. There's new case law to go through and we did have to issue that order under a compressed timeline. So just for purposes of the hearing today, um, I'm viewing that prior order as more, persuasive authority than it would be binding <laughs> and uh and we'll just go through it that way <laughs> so uh the last thing i just again i know we said we'll save housekeeping to the end but i just before i forget about this i know in a lot of the notices and, and the orders i've been using the doc clarification i'm not sure that that's still on the public facing website that you can even see what i'm referring to when i say doc so and so and i've been told from the clerk's office they are planning to have that updated by March or so. So and we can just take a wild guess at what I'm referring to and uh, go from there. But I think that's as close as we can get to Pacer uh, right now. And I think based on the volume of motions, I'm going to have to keep doing that. All right. Anything else? Let me throw it open to the floor before we dive in. Anything from the state, Mr. Wayne? Nothing from the state. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, anything from any of the defendants here today or counsel defense counsel there you are. okay so the first thing we had uh, according to the proposed agenda was dealing with the eca and the supremacy clause mr gillen you're taking that one well your honor what we're going to do on behalf of uh, uh mr schaefer and others have adopted our motion uh there are two components to our motion the uh, eca 
and the supremacy clause. So I'm going to be addressing uh, some of the comments about the ECA, and then Ms. Pearson will be handling the supremacy clause issues, if that's permissible with the court. And she will, I believe, also be addressing uh, some of the, the matters that were raised by some of the others dealing with the supremacy, supremacy clause issues. Uh, beginning. Uh, thank you, Ron. Uh, we now that we know that the prior rulings are uh, are only a persuasive authority. <laughs> I will uh, acknowledge, of course, that we have read the court's uh, uh, rulings uh, in Chesbro and Powell and understand uh, the court's position on some of those issues. During the course of our presentation today, uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, giving the court our view of the ECA uh, and our view of the Supremacy Clause and the interaction between the federal ECA and the, uh, and the uh, United States Constitution, the Supremacy Clause. Some of the things that we'll, to, to highlight some of the things that we'll be uh, bringing to the court's attention that may address some of the persuasive authority that the court has previously ruled, but that we would ask the court to consider our views on uh, would do, uh, uh, deal with uh, whether or not, frankly, the, the, the preemption issues apply, we believe, and this will be addressed by Ms. Pearson, whether or not uh, we think uh, preemption uh, does stand here uh, and has been established, and particularly in the, in the, in the area of conflict preemption where uh, the one of the standards is where state law quote stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objects of Congress and we that that's something that that uh, Ms. Pearson is going to be uh, uh, discussing and attempting to, to have the court understand our view of that which uh, is, is uh, somewhat different from the court's uh, ruling that it made in the Chesbro Powell uh, supremacy uh, uh, order issued earlier in this case. The other issue that may come up or will come up during the context of our supremacy argument will be uh, in the court's uh, previous orders, the court references whether or not the ECA uh, compels a duty uh, or a requirement. And the argument that will be made uh, by defense counsel is respectfully, we disagree with whether or not that is the correct uh, criterion upon which the, the uh, conflict preemption should be judged. Rather, uh, it is the question of whether or not uh, it, uh, it impedes as an obstacle and accomplishment of execution of the full purposes of the objectives and that the, it impedes the right, not, not an obligation or duty, but the right. Uh, so uh, she will be talking about that. Uh, the other area that we would, we did file a motion uh, yesterday asking the court to take judicial notice of the uh, filings in this building in this court, uh, clerk of court, uh, as it relates to the, the uh, lawsuit that was filed on December the 4th uh, by uh, uh, Donald Trump and David Schaefer challenging the election. We've attached the, uh, the docket sheet as an exhibit. We believe that there's no question about that. Uh, the, the, the purpose of that is one, to show for the record that it was filed, and number two, that it was not adjudicated. There was no adjudication of it 
as of December the 8th, uh, so that I think that we don't necessarily think that it is mandatory for the purposes of our argument that that be included, but for, for the sake of completeness, we would like the court to take judicial notice of the filings in, the, in this clerk's office, which should be uh, beyond dispute. And in that context, we would argue uh, that the, the Schaefer argument regarding plea and bar and motion to quash the indictment uh, is not necessarily a speaking demur. A speaking demur is if you have to add additional documents uh, or additional facts, but given the fact that the only thing that's really necessary to make an adjudication here, frankly, uh, in, the, in, in light of the supremacy argument that will be made by Ms. Pearson, our view is that you don't have to have uh, the presentation of any facts at all. But again, in the abundance of, of, of caution, we would say that, that if the court were to say, well, there, there should be some context uh, within uh, your, your plea and bar, we would say that the record really on that is basically complete by the filing of the lawsuit and the fact that it wasn't adjudicated triggering the ECA uh, safe harbor provision. So that is something that, that I forecast that we will be, uh, will be discussing uh, as we progress along. And with the court's indulgence, I'm gonna try and move through uh, my part of the ECA argument. I know the court has, and I hope the court will be patient. I know that you've, this isn't the court's first rodeo on ECA or on supremacy. But if the court would bear with us, we would we appreciate that. Before we dive in, why don't we handle this issue of the motion that you filed? I don't know if today would formally qualify as an evidentiary hearing, even if, even if it's by way of proffer or judicial notice. Uh, let me just hear from the state. The two issues were recognizing the prior version before it was amended of the ECA and something that's on the Fulton County's docket. Were there any concerns about that being recognized for the purposes of the record, although, but not foreclosing any of the state's arguments it may make in response to it? Judge, we just object strictly on the grounds that it's not relevant um, to, to what the court is going to take up today, because as you pointed out, this is not an evidentiary hearing. When we start talking about facts that are outside the indictment, when we talk, start talking about bringing in evidence, we're moving into that realm of speaking demur, we're moving into that realm of something equivalent to motion for summary judgment that doesn't exist in a criminal case. So we would object um, for those reasons. We don't think it's relevant at this point because facts outside the indictment are just not something that the court should be taking into consideration as it relates to these motions to dismiss, demurs, and motions to quash. So recognizing the relevance arguments and how applicable you think they are to the motion under the 201 judicial notice standards, though, any concerns that what would be accepted as a fact should not be? Uh, Judge, I think as it relates to that issue, they're in the record, they're, they're part of the court's public record. And so I don't think we're contesting the factual, uh, the fact that these documents are there and that they are what they purport to be. Not not agreeing to some of the contents of them, but they are what they purport to be. Sure. Okay. And I don't think that's generally necessary for sure. prior versions of a statute, but just uh, uh, counsel has asked for it and I don't see any reason why uh, we shouldn't, we can't make that clear. So just... For purposes of the record, we'll say that the motion filed on November 30th on those two facts is, is, is granted without foreclosing any other uh, the state's arguments. All right, Thank Mr. You, Gillen. Now, uh, first, the overview. Uh, we, uh, of course, uh, the presidential electors are created by, by the Constitution itself. Our view is the state must show a specific 
grant of authority from the Constitution or federal law to exercise any power over presidential electors. And really, here we're talking about only two such grants. The first one, one for the Constitution regarding appointment power to the state legislatures be addressed uh, by Ms. Pearson. The other, by Congress through federal statute, ECA, to decide presidential elector disputes by the ECA's safe harbor day. So that's the context in which we are, you know, we are saying that what you're looking at here is that this is the only way that, uh, that the state of Georgia has any ability to then have any kind of authority over presidential electors, the constitution or the federal statute the 2020 version of the ECA federal statute. So with that, uh, I'll be talking a little bit about the, the uh, presidential, excuse me, the, the uh, ECA. Now again, the presidential electors uh, meet uh, pursuant to the constitution in the respective states and vote by ballot for president, vice president, presidential electors assigned certify a list of persons voted for and transmit the list. And we all know the tortured history of the president of the electoral count act and sort of the chaos that had occurred uh, in the presidential elections prior to the 1887 act. So we're focusing here on this, what does the act say? It says that the electors must meet and vote on the first day of the first Monday after the second Tuesday in December at the place de uh, directed by the legislator of the state. In our case, of course, that was uh, on December the 14th in 2020. Now, second point, presidential electors shall vote, quote, in the manner directed by the Constitution. That's also a part of ECA Section uh, 8. And then again, the electors shall make and sign certificates, talking about how they seal the certificates, certify, and all the votes of the state given for uh, president, vice president contained therein, mail the certificates to the president of the Senate, the secretary of state for the state, in this matter, Georgia, and the archivist of the United States and the chief judge of the Northern District of Georgia. Now, the rubber really meets the road here in section five. Section five of the ECA of the 2020 version is really the meat of the coconut uh, as it relates to what, what happened here and what didn't happen here in Georgia. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time kind of reading this and then talking about it. Uh, and, and this is what section five said in 2020. If any state shall have provided by laws enacted prior to the date fixed for the appointment of the electors for its final determination of any controversy or contest concerning the appointment of all or any of the electors of such state by judicial or other methods or procedures and such determination shall be made at least six days before the time fixed for the meeting of the electors, such determination made pursuant to such law so existing on that date and made six days prior to said time of the meeting shall be conclusive, shall be con conclusive 
and shall govern in the counting of the electoral votes as provided in the Constitution. So what that means is the state of Georgia and all the other states uh, had an incentive given to it by Congress. The incentive was, look, if, if you follow Section 5, then you get to be the absolute conclusive uh, uh, decision maker about who is going to be the, uh, the electors or, uh, or uh, what outstanding controversies uh, if they don't exist. Only if, only if, by, in this case, the safe harbor date was December the 8th, only if the state of Georgia gets its act together and whether there was a, a controversy about the electors and it had not been, if the state of Georgia had it adjudicated prior to December the 8th, then what the, what the, the, the state of Georgia through the certification of the governor, that is conclusive. So the critical thing here is that every state, this is an incentive given to the states by, by Congress, hey, get your act together. Congress doesn't tell the state of Georgia, hey, this is how you have to go about setting up the procedural mechanism for your determination about having a final conclusive result uh, of your judicial challenges. But every state can, can take its actions or take no actions. State of Georgia set up whatever procedure is set up. One thing we do know here is that the state of Georgia, there was a pending challenge to the presidential election of 2020, timely filed on December the 4th, and the state of Georgia did not, pursuant to this law, did not reach a, uh, have a final determination of those controversies, or in this case, this lawsuit. We know that, and because of that, because of what happened, then the state of Georgia then loses its ability to make a conclusive determination about which electors uh, are to be, uh, are to be uh, counted in Congress. Once they did that, doesn't matter, candidly, how many times the governor of Georgia certified the results of, a, of the election or the recount, whatever. What does matter and what only matters is that they, uh, there was a pending lawsuit in this court, uh, in this courthouse, in this county, challenging that election and that by December the 8th, it was not adjudicated. It was not finalized. And because of that, then what happens is the state of Georgia loses its ability to make a conclusive determination about how the electors uh, votes are going to be counted in Congress on, on January the 6th. But the state still plays a, a role, does it not? I mean, isn't the governor's certification supposed to be the tiebreaker when Congress is making well, this no, consideration? We're, we're, uh, we're going to get to that, but I'll jump ahead. Uh, <laughs> and the tiebreaker only comes when this happens. Uh, uh, if there is, for example, now, the governor did certify. We all know that. Uh, and, and we all know that the state of Georgia didn't get its act together, didn't have a final adjudication, loses its ability to say that is the certificate of our governor and it is conclusive. It wasn't under federal law. 
It may not be conclusive, but aren't there still things happening in the state that matter? Well, certainly. But the only thing that matters as it relates to this uh, uh, federal law, the only thing that matters is they didn't get their act done and get uh, a, an adjudication in time. So what happens? What happens after that? Uh, well, uh, we, uh, we're jumping a little ahead of my PowerPoint, but that's just fine. Uh, I think we all know uh, what's in the PowerPoints. But what happens is once they, once they don't get uh, the, their act together by January, uh, excuse me, December the 8th, then uh, all bets about the conclusive nature of the governor's uh, certification go away. But what doesn't go away, the governor's still certified. And what has to happen then is we have electors have to vote on December the 14th. Now, uh, if there is, is a, a question about who the electors are, because, and this is critical, Your Honor, this is critical. By not getting their act together, by not having a final adjudication, the carrot that Congress gave the state of Georgia and all the other states, if you get your act together by safe harbor date, then and only then do you get the final call on who the electorates would be, but they didn't. And because of that, then all of the, uh, the, the, the uh, Democratic electors and the Republican electors are in effect all at that time contingent electors because there is no certainty about who or which slate will be selected under federal law. And as we know, what happens is is that once that safe harbor date passes, then the issue, and now we're getting kind of over into section 15 uh, of, of the uh, ECA, but once you get over into there, then the 2020 version uh, tells us what steps are taken to make a final determination about what electoral slates will be, de will be decided. You're right. A lot of things are happening in the state. A lot of, and, and let, let's go over things that could have happened, uh, that didn't happen. For example, uh, there could have been uh, an adjudication after Safe Harbor on uh, the pending election. Of course, that would not have been definitive and conclusive as it relates to the Safe Harbor date. The power has still shifted over to Congress, but had there been a, an adjudication of the lawsuit itself after the Safe Harbor date, and certainly the adjudicator, and this is critical here, the adjudicator is Congress, not the state of Georgia. So the, the adjudicator, Congress, could then say, well, uh, here we have a, 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 a certification from the, from the governor of Georgia, and we have uh, a result in, in, in a lawsuit. Let's just say, hypothetically, had there been, and parenthetically, there was never an adjudication uh, by a court on the lawsuit. It was never addressed at any point. But that's somewhat uh, 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 tangential to the issue about whether or not what Congress can do with information. They are the adjudicator under the 2020 law, and what they can do is the following. They can sit there and they could go, well, now we know that uh, the lawsuit was uh, dismissed or was adjudicated 
against uh, President Trump and David Schaefer. Okay, if that's the case, they can consider that. It's not just conclusive, it's not definitive. They can consider that in making their determinations about what they're going to, uh, what they're going to do. Or for example, if uh, on the other hand, the lawsuit was, uh, was adjudicated in favor of President Trump and uh, David Schaefer, then Congress then uh, could then look at those facts as an adjudicator and make a determination about whether or not uh, they should choose the Democratic uh, slate that had been previously uh, sent up by, the, by the, uh, the, the governor or by the Republican slate that had been sent in. So then and only then, but what happens in Congress uh, is the following, and we all know it was a somewhat, and this is, a, and this is important consideration, Your Honor. This is a process set up by Congress. The whole ECA is a process in order to make sure that it can be done in an appropriate way that's approved by Congress because they have the power to delegate, approved by Congress, and the whole process involved the safe harbor date, the whole process involved this December 14th meetings, the whole process involved everything that happened after December the 14th, upon which the adjudicator, Congress, could make a determination. So let's just say up it goes to Congress, and uh, as we know, the procedure at the time of the 2020 was as follows. What was the procedure? Well, well, here we go. Were there objections filed by a senator or a House of Representatives regarding the election? Uh, the, if, if there are appropriate objections filed, then the Senate uh, goes and votes and the House goes and votes. Let's just say that uh, the, the House goes, well, we think that it's the Democratic uh, slate, okay? And then the Senate says, we think it was the Democratic slate. They agree. Once they agree, it's done. They agree and it's the Democratic slate. However, the law in 2020 says that if the Senate and the House of Representatives disagree about which slate uh, of electors would be received, then there is not an agreement between the houses of Congress. And then, and only then, does Congress in its power go back to the governor of, of, of uh, Georgia and say, okay, tell us again, which one did you, did you certify? And he says the Democratic slate, and that would be it. The point of all this is that is that at the time of the, uh, of the meeting on December the 14th, the meeting between the Democratic electors and the Republican electors were uh, in furtherance of this, this scheme, this, this statutory scheme set up by Congress for a procedure to deal with these sorts of situations. And uh, what happened is that we have a situation where the electors on December the 14th did exactly what they had to do, because if they didn't, if they hadn't, if they said, well, I don't want to, I'm afraid that, that the district attorney of Fulton County might indict me uh, if I meet and show up and follow my role and play my role in this 
uh, this uh, congressional uh, process and, and, and procedure laid out by the ECA. Because if they don't show up, if they don't vote, then what happens? Then they have failed to comply with uh, the congressional laws stating that, they, that the electors meet and vote on a certain date and uh, rendering moot the whole issue of whether or not there was any kind uh, of valid considerations based on, uh, on the lawsuit. And by doing that, what you've really done, and in the most frightening aspect of this, I hate to throw in frightening, but um, the concerning aspect of all this is, is, is the following. When people who are electors uh, understanding this process, and we know from precedent that, was, uh, that we, we have the Hawaii precedent. We won't, uh, the court is aware of all that. We don't need to spend a lot of time dwelling into that. Perhaps Ms. Pearson will uh, to some degree. But with that in mind, by exercising and playing their role in this process, they did the only thing that they could have done in order to keep the process alive. In order, to, because if they didn't, if they did not do it, the state of Georgia, by failing to meet the safe harbor date, if the threat is out there, all right, we failed to meet our safe harbor date of December the 8th, but, uh, you know, Mr. Republican uh, elector, if you show up and you follow the Hawaii uh, precedent, and if you follow what the ECA, uh, the understanding of the ECA, that you have to vote in order to determine whether or not the, uh, the Democratic or, elect or the Republican electors are, are selected by Congress, then what you've done is, is allow or allow the state through the district attorney's office to say, by threat of indicting you uh, in a grand jury, if you show up, they're defeating the purpose of the congressional procedure and scheme set up in 2020, as we know, Things have changed now since 2020. And I think the best argument for proving everything we say about the ECA in 2020 is the fact that the Congress amended uh, the ECA, as we know, uh, in 2022. But having said that, what we then have is we've got a situation where we know that uh, in, in, and we're not saying that the the uh, ECA is saying that, that there was a requirement or a duty. We're going to, we're, this is a process they've set up. And the, the supremacy clause issues, which we dealt with uh, soon, will address uh, some of those issues concerning uh, conflict uh, uh, preemption that I mentioned briefly. But it's clear from, from section 15 uh, in the uh, we can go to, uh, um, no, let's, let, let's re leave it right there, Anthony, just for a second. The next slide, really, the reason why we have this up, it really states the obvious. This is a part of the Souter uh, dissenting in, in um, Bush v. Gore. And this whole issue about uh, Section 5 is not serious and tells us what seems to be self-evident, at least to us. That provision sets certain conditions on for treating a state's certification of presidential electors as conclusive in the event that a dispute of recognizing these, uh, those electors must be resolved in Congress under uh, Title III, Section 15. 
Conclusiveness requires selection under a legal scheme in place before the election with results determined at least six days before the date set for casting electoral votes. But, says uh, Justice Souter, but no state is required to conform to Section 5. If it cannot do that, for whatever reason, the sanction for failing to satisfy the conditions of Section 5 is simply loss of what is called its safe harbor, end quote. And, and that determination, and even that determination is to be made if made anywhere in Congress. And so they're telling us the obvious. The state didn't get it done on time. They've lost their ability to conclusively state these are our electors. And as a result of that, uh, the mechanisms under Section 15 uh, would be in place. Next slide. Uh, the, uh, you know, again, on uh, Section 15, there are many references uh, providing for more than one or two or more returns from the state. Um, and uh, if we go to the next slide, there are essentially five different portions within Section 15 dealing with references to more than one uh, of the certificate or, or votes. All certificates and papers reporting to be certificates is one when all <laughs> objections to be made, uh, so made to any vote or paper from a state. Another, uh, the two houses concurrently may reject the vote or votes when they agree that such vote or votes have not been regularly made by electors. If more than one return or paper purporting to be a return from a state has been received, again, and again, a reference in such case of more than one return purporting to be a return from a state. What does all that tell us? It tells us precisely what we were saying. This, this statutory scheme, which is set up to deal with precisely the situation that we had in Georgia. And, and this isn't about, well, uh, you know, if you don't follow the scheme and at the, in the end, someone says, well, I think in the end of the day in 2022, I think that Joe Biden won. You don't decide whether to indict somebody because um, in retrospect, someone says, well, we think that, uh, you know, that, that you picked the, 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 the losing team. My next slide uh, is a, is, it goes over, some, summarizes some of the things that I have said. And just to get the, the timeline down together. Um, so I, first of all, just to note for everyone, if we're multiple PowerPoints, if we could have those uh, emailed as well, we can make those part of the record. And Mr. Gillen, I think you're, I think you're, you're laying out exactly how it works. I think that's laid out in the briefing as well. And I think that probably would be quite relevant to the issues of justification or intent for the purposes of today for a pre-indictment challenge. Um, I think that should be our focus. Well, uh, so I, I think you're the course uh, uh, being kind of saying you don't want me to go through my PowerPoint, uh, my, uh, my timeline. <laughs> That's fine. I'll address what the court said. We're saying that our, our, our uh, this timeline and our arguments concerning um, concerning the, the the scheme doesn't isn't confined as the court in some of the orders that it made in Chesbro and Powell as uh, regarding the the uh, motions the denial of the motion to to, to uh, dismiss uh, for supremacy and some of the uh, arguments on demur that 
that it would be something that would be more appropriate for a directed verdict with all respect, the persuasive authority we would disagree with in that context because what we have here is the record before the court shows uh, everything that we have said is a part of this case. The court has taken judicial notice of uh, the filings and the, the triggering mechanism of the uh, ECA, the failure to comply with, with, uh, with uh, the safe harbor date. That isn't something for the jury to decide. These electors should not have to wait for a jury when on the self-evident, uh, the facts of the, of the indictment and of the law, of the law that everything they did was lawful and appropriate. That is our point. This is not, with all due respect, Your Honor, a situation where, where a defendant is saying, oh, this is a speaking demur, uh, and, and I'm, I've now added as the, as, uh, in the, in the Chesbro uh, or Powell uh, motions, uh, attachments of certain transcripts or whether the court said, well, you're now that's really a speaking to Murr. Here, we're saying on the face of what the court has, the court should make a determination. This needs to stop as it relates to folks, uh, uh, the, the electors, it should stop because what they did under the law and under the record and this indictment, as we have it, they talk about the December 14th, it should stop. Now, they should not be forced to have to go uh, through a four-month trial and then say at the end of that exactly what we've told the court, what they've done is lawful, uh, and what they have done, frankly, in my opinion, was appropriate uh, and would have perhaps been not appropriate had they been frightened away from fear of pro prosecution and not done what the federal law had stated. And parenthetically, uh, Ms. Uh, Pearson is about to get up and is going to say that, uh, you know, that there really aren't, uh, frankly, even uh, necessarily a need for any kind of you know, factual issues or even uh, the, the submission under the, uh, the uh, notice, uh, judicial notice the court gave us because of the supremacy clause issues that it should end uh, for us and for the others as it relates to the supremacy clause issues. The final slide uh, is a uh, simply making the point that I made before, which is critical. As of December the 14th, 2020, because no conclusive result uh, under section five had been reached by Georgia, the Republican and Democratic presidential electors, they were all contingent presidential electors. Um, they acted appropriately, and for the uh, on for that, Your Honor, I will I will uh, pass the baton to uh, Ms. Pearson for her supremacy arguments. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. I'm Holly Pearson. I also represent Mr. Schaefer, and we also are arguing these issues for supremacy clause um, and constitutional issues for all the other defendants who have adopted our arguments or who have also made their arguments uh, that are here with the court today. Um, I appreciate what you said, Your Honor. Obviously, we studied the earlier orders, the arguments, the briefing. Um, and I think that the way I look at it is you were, the court was only given about, you know, 10 pieces of a 50-piece jigsaw puzzle to try to put it all together. And what I'd like to try to do is give the court the full picture to put it in context to see how the Constitution instructs the court and the district attorney's office to act. I think there are sort of four 
areas where I think that there is going to be a, a lot of additional information and <clears throat> that is critical to why this is different and why that the outcome should be different. The first is the fact that presidential electors are um, created by the Constitution. Um, and therefore, there are no the implications from that that we'll talk about those no traditional state powers or 10th Amendment reserved powers. And that's an important and very different situation. Number two, the boundaries of the constitutionally granted appointment power. There hasn't really been any before now briefing or discussion about where are those boundaries and is the state inside of them and outside of them. And as we will see, uh, they are firmly outside of them and therefore they cannot rely on the appointment power to authorize any actions they take against presidential electors. So third, Mr. Gillen touched on this, but it's important that we're looking at Congress here in its adjudicative role, and we'll talk about why that matters. And then fourth, there are some additional arguments on the preemption that's already been discussed, and there are also additional types of preemption that apply here um, when all of this is put in proper context. So starting at the beginning, um, presidential electors are created by the Constitution, and because of that, this turns this on its head from the traditional state powers that are presumed. Here in the United States term limits case versus Thornton, the Supreme Court said that for entities like presidential electors or members of Congress that are created by the Constitution, the exclusive federal function that they form, um, well, the, the, the function they form is, is federal and any power that any state has over them has to be delegated to it and it's not reserved. So it has to be a specific delegation by the constitution to the state to act. As the Supreme Court said, the states can exercise no powers whatsoever, which exclusively spring out of the existence of the national government, which the constitution does not delegate to them. No state can say that it has reserved what it never possessed. And in the absence of any constitutional delegation to the states, such a power does not exist. So the obvious and normal question then is, what power does the constitution give to the states with regard to presidential electors? Because we know we can't reserve, we can't rely on the state's original or reserved or the 10th amendment reserved powers here because the, the construct of it being created by the constitution and the Supreme Court's explanation of that in term limits says that we cannot. So what power do they give? They give the power did I skip one? There we go. Sorry. Technical difficulties. Um, what authority does the Constitution give? Well, it plainly gives one limited power to the states. It gives the state the power of appointment in the manner that the legislature sees fit to appoint presidential electors. Well, what does that mean? Because the discussion so far has been well, we have appointment power. That means we can do anything we want at any point at any time with regard to uh, presidential electors and it's essentially unlimited. Well, that, that just isn't the case. The Supreme Court has made explicit that the appointment power stops at least before they ballot. And I think the construct of the constitution makes clear that the appointment power of the state, which is broad, uh, when you're acting within it. They have broad authority to set the manner, means, qualifications, procedures, et cetera, around the presidential electors. But it stops at election day because the power under the constitution to decide presidential elector disputes goes to Congress on that day. Once there is an election, Congress under the 12th amendment is the only body 
that is allowed to adjudicate presidential elector disputes. Now, Mr. Gillen explained that Congress decided maybe it didn't want to do all that hard work itself, and it delegated through the Electoral Count Act one window of opportunity for the state to do that for it through the Electoral Count Act, through the safe harbor, if they'd made a final judicial determination through the judicial process that's been set up in Georgia by the safe harbor date. But here they did not do that. And so the Constitution under um, Article Two, Section One, and the and under the Twelfth Amendment, make plain that Congress alone has the authority then to adjudicate presidential elector disputes. And so, whatever the appointment power is, the Supreme Court and the Constitution make clear that it doesn't apply to when presidential electors are meeting and balloting. And, and uh, how do you respond to the states? Citation to In Ray Green and is it Chiafalo? Uh, yeah, it, it, all of those, Your Honor, are grounded in the Supreme Court specifically grounds. It's a it's sanction of the state's actions in the appointment power that is given to the to the to the um, to the state. So, for example, Chiafalo is a follow up case to Ray v. Blair, which we'll talk about, which is cited here. Ray v. Blair was the first case the Supreme Court looked at about what's the limit on the appointment power of the state. And that case was not quite Chiafalo. It was, can we make presidential electors swear an oath of loyalty to the candidate? So in other words, faithless electors. You can't, can the state impose on an elector the duty to vote for the candidate of the party? And what the Ray case said was, yeah, they can do that. But the only reason they can do it is because it is part of the qualifications of the elector themselves and therefore is grounded in the appointment power. Chiafalo is the next iteration that you talked about and that the state has relied on, next iteration of the Ray v. Blair case. And what it said is, okay, we said in Ray, you can make the oath. In Chiafalo, the question was, can you enforce the oath? And the Supreme Court specifically grounding itself, and I have that here, yeah, the quote here from the court, they specifically gr grind or ground or base their authority, uh, the state's authority to enforce those pledges on the appointment power because it's about setting the qualifications. And even though it's enforced afterward, it is based on the pre-election uh, and pre-appointment appointment power that the state has. So that's Chiafalo, that's Ray, that's Burroughs, that's Green. That's all of the cases um, that, that the state decided and that we've talked about, they're all grounded in the appointment power. And if you read them, Your Honor, Ray, Chiafalo, all of them talk explicitly about it, um, about how it's, it has to be grounded. And, and the faithless elected cases are actually a really good example of why we know the appointment power is so limited because the Supreme Court had to go out of its way to grind the, or to ba base the authority of the state to do it in the appointment power because it knew it didn't have anything beyond the appointment power. And then some of the dissents you'll see from Thomas and others, they, they sort of make these points. So what is clear? So ultimately, are you saying that anything an elector does because that is exclusively the purview of federal authority, the state has to stay outside of that? Well, anything they do as an elector. I mean, if they went out and committed a murder, I mean, the state would obviously be able to prosecute them for a murder. But if, they, but here in this case, they have been prosecuted for their actions as presidential electors. And it's not just me saying so. This is what the, the Supreme Court has said here. They've said that presidential electors exercise a federal function in balloting for president and vice president. 
They say that they exercise federal functions under and discharge duties in virtue of authority and conferred by the Constitution of the United States. So yes, once we're back in the federal realm and outside of the appointment power, the state has no authority. Remember, under the term limits case, the state, it's the state's burden. Unlike the normal presumption where they have sort of plenary and common law and traditional police powers, that doesn't exist here. The term limits case makes clear they have to identify some specific authority that they have over these presidential electors. The only authority they have identified is the appointment power, and the appointment power plainly does not apply to the activities for which they have indicted the presidential electors, which are solely within the federal realm here. We talked about Chiapalo. And that's really the point here, Your Honor. It's not whether the electors can do whatever they want. It's about which sovereign gets to govern them. And under the Constitution and the ECA, only the federal sovereign gets to govern them after the appointment power is passed, is expired, is over, whatever you want to call it. Same point, Your Honor, with the Georgia statutes that the court previously cited. Same point as the, the Ray and the Chiafalo case. Yes, the state undisputedly has the right to exercise its appointment power over the presidential electors, but all the statutes that this court cited to are related to that appointment power. They're about the how, the when, the whys. They're not about the what's. And the what here is what the presidential electors are doing exclusively created by the constitution, exclusively governed by the constitution and Congress and the ECA. So, and that is what they're charged with here. There is no conduct in this indictment against my client or the other electors that has anything to do with the appointment power. It all has to do with the balloting, the meeting and the balloting, and that's exclusively federal. They, they have to show what authority they have and they cannot. We also have, even if this weren't the case, Your Honor, we also have uh, preemption issues in this case. We have you know, structural or constitutional preemption is what I call it. Um, then we have the more commonly known conflict and field, but there are two types of each of those because you know, why make it easy and have one type of conflict and call the other one something else? We have two types of conflict, which is where you can't comply with both the state and the federal law at the same time, or when the state law obstructs Congress's purposes and objectives, we, both of those apply. Then you have field where Congress's regulation is so pervasive, there's no room for the states to supplement it. Or where the federal interest is so dominant that you presume state laws are precluded. And I will say that second type of field is somewhat similar to the structural and constitutional preemption. And they call it one in some cases and one and others in the other. So, but it's similar analysis, but we'll, we'll address each of them in turn. Um, as to structural constitutional preemption, States can't use their criminal laws to interfere with actions that are inseparably connected to the functioning of the national government. And this is sort of the general supremacy clause preemption argument. The supremacy clause, as you know, trumps state laws that are inconsistent with it. But in the Loney case and the cases that follow it and cite it, what the Supreme Court has said, there's just gonna be, whether there's another federal statute or not, whether there's another constitutional provision or not, there are just gonna be some times when it is so closely connected with what the federal government is doing and the functioning of the national government, we're just not gonna let the states in. And they don't, we're not gonna let them come suit up and play on our field. And that is what um, we have here. You know, the Supreme Court has told us, I mean, I think it's probably self-evident that the election of the president is one of the most closely 
um, and most inseparably connected to the functioning of the national government of any activity undertaken. But the Supreme Court has helped us by telling us so. The president is vested with the executive power of the nation. The importance of his election and the vital character of its relationship to and effect on the welfare and safety of the whole people cannot be too strongly stated. The state objects to my Loney case or the Supreme Court's Loney case that I've cited, but it's really on all fours. Well, maybe on all three and limping as one of my law professors used to say, but in uh, what happened in the Loney case, Your Honor, is very similar to what happened here. And what happened there is Mr. Loney is a regular citizen. He's not a presidential elector. He's not a congressman. He's just a guy who happened to have some evidence that Congress needed when it was acting in its judicial capacity, its quasi-judicial adjudicative capacity to figure out which member, which candidate from an election in Congress was gonna sit in the congressional seat. So it was adjudicating a congressional dispute, which as you know, it's constitutionally entitled to do exclusively. And apparently, according to the Supreme Court, the local law enforcement didn't care for whatever testimony Mr. Loney gave because it apparently supported the candidate that they didn't like. And so Mr. Loney uh, comes out from the, uh, given the testimony through deposition and because he was sworn, sworn by a state notary, the state charged him with perjury. And the Supreme Court ultimately said, no, 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 no. This, this is a congressional dispute being disputed. He's giving evidence and testimony to Congress to help them in this adjudication. And therefore, this is too close to the functioning of the national government. This is too related to the federal system for us to allow the state to use its criminal laws to intrude here. And Your Honor, Loney and, and our case are virtually identical. In Loney, you have a federal election matter that's being resolved by Congress. There, it was a congressional contest. Here, it's a presidential contest. There you have Congress acting in its adjudicative capacity, which it almost never does, right? It only has two instances that I'm aware of, these two. It gets to decide congressional disputes and it gets to decide presidential elector ballot disputes. One's Article One, Section 5, the other one is the 12th Amendment in the ECA. And then here you have a defendant, just like in Loney, that's indicted for taking actions that are under exclusive federal authority, according to the Supreme Court, to assist Congress in their adjudication. In the Loney case, they were testifying in the congressional dispute. In this case, the electors were submitting elector ballots that the statute specifically allows them to submit for Congress to adjudicate them. And so again, Your Honor, it may not be all fours, but I think it's on three and limping. Um, so that's constitutional preemption. Just it's too close to the federal government, state has to get out. There's more specific conflict preemption. There are two types. The first type is where you can't comply with both the state and federal law at the same time. And I do think that the, the introduction in the last argument of the duty concept did not come from the court. But I think that, that Mr. Gillen is right that that is not the, the proper framing of the conflict analysis here. It's not whether they had a duty or were compelled to do something. It's whether the federal law gives you the right or ability to do something and the state is interfering with your federal ability to do that. So you can't, the state cannot criminalize what federal law allows. And here they are criminalizing the submission of ballots that the ECA under section 15 plainly allows. In fact, it allows it 
five different times in one section of the statute, as you can see. And to be clear, Your Honor, I think they covered this in the, in the prior, but just to, it's been a while. So a reminder, the, the ACA doesn't say you can just submit, submit presidential elector ballots. It says certificates and papers purporting to be certificates. I mean, it's the, you know, um, it's saying, bring me your tired, your poor, your certificates, your purported certificates, your, you know, any vote or paper, any vote, any return. And so clearly the federal law authorizes. It's a little this. different than the Statue of Liberty, though. Where is it welcoming? <laughs> I mean, where does it asking for this extra work? Your Honor, the, the, the Supreme Court has said in, well, it, it's it, clearly this, the ECO was passed because the, the routine nature of, of giving these multiple ballots, and I think that's covered in Mr. Cheeley's um, documents pretty quickly, but whether they are asking for it or not, they are plainly saying it is authorized and they're plain, and, and it is part of their plainly plenary authority to be the adjudicator. And it makes sense if you put it in the context of like a court, Your Honor, they're acting in their adjudicative capacity. And what they're saying is, here's the kind of evidence that we're gonna take. And some of it may be more persuasive than others. Certificates might be more persuasive than papers purporting to be certificates. Things with certificates of ascertainment from the governor might be more persuasive than, you know, 16 buddies getting together and sending in something on, you know, in crayon. But we're gonna take it and we get to be the adjudicator of what's going on with here. And what the state is saying is we get to tell Congress what evidence it's allowed to receive, even though Congress has made plain that it will receive and adjudicate these types. And you, the presidential electors here cannot fill out ballots that Congress has said it will accept and not be accused of crimes. And that is straight up conflict preemption in its most classic sense. There is also a second type of conflict preemption. You'll forgive me, Your Honor, just for a second. And it's when the state obstructs Congress's purposes and objectives. And that's also present here because whether it welcomes them, hates them, or whatever, it permits them. Um, and by criminalizing the submission of them, they're obstructing Congress's authority to receive these presidential or this evidence in its adjudicative capacity. It directly impairs the congressional vote counting because as the Supreme Court made clear in many cases, including Bush v. Gore, and they relied on the you know, story, history, et cetera, the ability to count includes and must have the ability to adjudicate. And here, Congress obviously cannot count or adjudicate what it is prohibited by the state from receiving. And so, standing in front of one side to the congressional courthouse, so to speak, in this analogy, and telling them they can't submit their evidence, but Congress somehow has a right to adjudicate it, they can't, they can't evaluate or adjudicate what they can't have. And they have said they will take it, they have said it's permissible, and the state has said you can't send it in. It's also a, a sort of a usurpation or a rewriting of the ECA, Your Honor. And Mr. Gillen touched on this a little bit, but here, what the status, the ECA says, as Mr. Gillen made plain, here's what we're gonna tell you, state. We've got all the power, here's what we're gonna give you. If you get a judicial decision done by Safe Harbor Day, you get to tell us who the presidential electors are. If you don't, then we get to tell you who they are. 
But what the state has done here is arbitrarily on based on no authority that I'm aware of said, nope, we don't care about the safe harbor of the ECA. What we have decided is that the governor's certification at the beginning of the process is binding and decides who the lawful and only lawful electors of the state are. And therefore we're gonna stand in front of anybody through criminal, you know, threat of criminal prosecution or actual criminal prosecution inside of the side we decide don't, didn't win and keep them from sending it to Congress. Well, that's not what the ECA says. As you pointed out, Your Honor, the ECA says you default to the governor's certification at the very, very end of the process. It has no legal binding authority whatsoever on anyone until that time. If they don't meet the safe harbor, Congress can decide to consider whatever it wants to decide. It is not bound by any governor's certification. It doesn't deem anybody to be the lawful. They're, as Mr. Gillen explained, they're all contingent electors. If they don't meet the safe harbor date, everybody's contingent until Congress tell us, tells us who isn't based on whatever they want to consider on January 6th. And so that is clear obstruction of Congress's purposes because you're keeping them from getting evidence to which they are lawfully entitled and which they have said is permissible <clears throat> and available. And then field preemption, pervasive regulation, the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore just described um, ECA as so pervasive as to occupy the field. In fact, one justice even suggested it was so pervasive that maybe even courts could not come in and disrupt Congress's sole authority under the ECA. But it's particularly uh, covering the field when, as we discussed at the beginning, the state doesn't have any authority that they can point to to be playing on this field at all. And then this, again, this is related to what we've talked about, Your Honor, but the, the dominant federal interest. We've talked about how the power of Congress to judge the legality of the electoral votes is a necessary and consequent power uh, of the power to count. And the existence of this power is absolute necessity to the preservation of government. There can be no doubt that of the primary federal interest, the dominant federal interest, candidly, the only federal interest for the activities that we're talking about here. And so we would say the field is not only flooded and fully occupied by the Constitution and the ECA, but it's also uh, got a do not enter sign for the state under for the reasons we've discussed. And I think, Your Honor, in conclusion, I know that we're always happy to see the conclusion sign. Um, in conclusion, I just want to say in the big picture, if we think about what we're talking about here, I think it makes intuitive sense if you look at what the Constitution does and how it is structured. I don't think it makes any intuitive sense um, that the framers intended for one state prosecutor in one state to take on a huge federal investigation involving so many disruptive forces in the federal government and in the functioning of the national government. The Supreme Court and the Constitution, I believe, have tried to make clear that that is not within the boundaries of what the state prosecutors can do. It doesn't mean if there were crimes committed that those people walk or they go scot-free. What it means is which sovereign gets to be the enforcer. And here it has to be the federal government because the state cannot ground its indictment and has not grounded its indictment in any power given to it under the appointment clause or in anything else. That's, the only thing else out there is the safe harbor and there's no dispute that that wasn't met. And I know in a case like this, we're pretty far down the road and it's pretty difficult to say, hey, oh, wait a minute, what? you don't have jurisdiction or authority to do this, but we're all at the end of the day bound by the rule of the law. 
And here we're talking about the supreme law of the land, what the constitution tells us we have to do. And if we follow that rule of law here, your honor, this has to be dismissed. Thank you. All right, thank you, Ms. Pearson. So, Judge, I wanna kinda start with the elephant in the room. Um, a lot of the other side's argument on this idea that their clients were presidential electors and that the state cannot regulate the conduct of presidential electors because of the Electoral Count Act. The elephant in the room is none of them were presidential electors. None of them are presidential electors. They've never been presidential electors um, as it relates to the 2020 election. And so those arguments do not apply as a, as a threshold matter. Um, additionally, if their arguments even were to apply, it would require some type of evidence in the record that the court can make a finding uh, about that would prove that they are electors or that they were electors. And so until that happens, first of all, the argument's premature, but that fact is they were not electors, they are not electors. And so none of the analysis about preemption applies to them, does not apply to them. And so of course, as the court acknowledged before we started or right as we started, your honor has already rejected this argument. You've already found that there's nothing in the Electoral Count Act that either expressly or implicitly preempts state law. Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but I do wanna kind of hit some of the arguments that the other side made just to preserve the record. Um, starting with express preemption, other side pointed to nothing. Um, conflict preemption, they say that number one, you can't comply with both Georgia criminal laws and the Electoral Count Act. That is not true. The real 2020 electors did that. They complied with their responsibilities under the Electoral Count Act, Congress counted their votes, and they didn't commit any violations of the criminal code of Georgia. Uh, they also say that state law obstructs Congress's ability to count the votes. They say that this prosecution tells people that you can't send in multiple votes to Congress. Well, that's not quite true. What this prosecution says, what, what, what we've charged these defendants with doing is sending in documents that say that they are the duly elected and qualified electors from the state of Georgia, which they were not. That's the operative language that is behind all of these charges. They are representing themselves as the actual electors certified by the governor, duly elected and qualified, and they were never that. They were never that. If you wanna send in a sticky note, a piece of paper, whatever it is that says, you know, I want to submit an electoral college vote for XYZ person, you can do that without getting prosecuted, as long as you are not purporting to be someone else or purporting to have authority that you don't have, claiming to be duly elected and qualified, and doing all of that with fraudulent intent. That's what they are charged with doing. So the state's position would be, if there had been a disclaimer at the bottom of the actual certificate submitted otherwise the actions of meeting convening bringing in a court reporter everything else that was all authorized by the eca i can't say that for certain judge because it depends on a lot of other facts it depends on a lot of other context if that were the case if there had been a disclaimer um that would have been taken into consideration but that there wasn't a disclaimer so I can't, I can't answer that with certainty um, because that's just not what the facts are here. There wasn't a disclaimer. 
Um, again, turning to field preemption, they say that the field is occupied um, by the Electoral Count Act. It's not. <laughs> what, what about the argument? I think it's raised in uh, also in uh, Defendant Chile's brief, the idea that if Congress came back and decided to accept or certify a different slate, um, is the state then able to prosecute the slate that Congress ultimately accepts? Again, Judge, that's not what the facts are here, so I can't answer that question. Because it, it, plays on... in, it plays into the preemption arguments, though, right? Well, I, again, I can't quite answer that either because there's first the question of are we talking about complete preemption or are we talking about as applied preemption? And so I think it's very clear that there's no complete preemption here. There's no you know, absolute preemption. They didn't talk a whole lot about as applied preemption. Um, and that's a very fact specific situation. And so different facts will lead to different outcomes. So I'm hesitant to wade into the waters of facts that just aren't present in this case. Um, <clears throat> So again, turning to field preemption, just briefly to hit on this, they say that the Electoral Count Act occupies the field, that our uh, criminal statutes are trying to, to regulate. It's not true. The Electoral Count Act tells Congress how to count votes, what to do when you receive more than one vote. Um, it doesn't authorize people to send in whatever they want. It doesn't say these are the lawful votes under state law. It doesn't say, you know, it's it's legal for you to do X, Y, Z, doesn't say anything about what someone else is supposed to do. It says what Congress is supposed to do in deciding what vote to count. That's not what the statutes in this indictment have anything to do with whatsoever. Um, then they also say that the federal interests are so dominant that the state can't regulate. Again, we, we mentioned this, I believe, in, a, in the prior argument on this issue, but preserve it for the record that our position is the interest is the same. The federal interest is making sure the right vote is counted. The state's interest here is making sure the right vote is counted, that people don't hold themselves out to be a public officer that they are not. And so there's no conflict there whatsoever. Um, and again, under the idea of, of field preemption, you have to look at what the statutes do. And there's no statute, no, no federal statute that they've raised that punishes people for pretending to be presidential electors. Maybe there would be some conflict there. I'm not saying that there is because there's plenty of case law that suggests that the state federal government can prosecute people for the same acts, but we're not, we're not getting one set of laws that completely occupies a field that Georgia's laws um, are, are intruding upon. I just wanna kind of preserve those issues for the record. And I'll move on now to some of the more substantive arguments. Um, and I want to start with this because this is very, I think this is a very important concept. In their briefs, they really hit on this idea that Georgia lacks delegated power uh, to prosecute um, to prosecute them under the United States Constitution. That is completely at odds with the 10th Amendment. And I don't think that this is anything new to the court, but the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states. So the Constitution has to delegate specifically power to the federal government, and that which is not delegated remains with the states. And that includes the power to prosecute people for committing crimes. Again, same, this concept goes back to the beginning. 
take a look at the Federalist Papers. Federalist number 45, James Madison wrote, powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The state powers reserved to, or, excuse me, the powers reserved to the several states extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people. This is not a difficult concept. Again, the courts recognize it. And our federal system, the national government possesses limited powers. The states have, and the people retain the remainder. It's what the court acknowledged in its prior order is called the police power. We have the power to regulate fraud in our elections. Again, they attempt to, to turn the 10th amendment on its head. And even if you take a, a step past that, the constitution expressly assigns the states the power to regulate elections. We pointed this out in our briefs, um, but it starts with the constitution, article two, section one. It expressly assigns to the states the power to appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. That means that the states determine who their electors are. It's in the constitution. The Electoral Count Act cannot interfere with that. And again, as the court pointed out, um, we've made some sites to some of these other cases. In Ray Green, 134 U.S. 377 at 380, an 1890 case, Congress has never undertaken to interfere with the manner of appointing electors or to regulate the conduct of such election or to punish any fraud in voting for electors, but has left these matters to the control of the states. I don't know how much more explicit it can get. The Supreme Court recognized many, many years ago that the state has the power to punish fraud in federal elections. And this issue was kind of taken up again very recently in 2023 by the Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper, uh, 143 Supreme Court 2065. State legislatures must provide a complete code. And this is, this is uh, dealing with the, the manner of holding elections clause in the part of the Constitution that grants the states um, the power to, to conduct federal congressional elections, but it uses the same language as it relates to presidential electors. So uh, the state legislatures have to provide a code for congressional elections that includes regulations relating to notices, registration, supervision of voting, protection of voters, prevention of fraud and corrupt practices, et cetera. And we would submit to the court that that analysis of the word manner as it relates to the congressional um, elections, the same word is used as it relates to presidential electors and the same analysis applies. Manner means we have the power to prevent fraud and corrupt practices in our presidential elections. And as the court pointed out, the Supreme Court unanimously held and she followed that Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution gives the state's far-reaching authority over presidential electors absent some other constitutional constraint. Um, and as, as the court also pointed out, they said that the states have the power to penalize faithless electors. And this is talking about real electors, real actual presidential electors. If there's the power to, to impose a penalty on the real electors, how does it make any logical sense this, that the state can't prosecute people who are not electors? I'm going to turn to the safe harbor argument. Defendants contend that the, if there's pending litigation upon the passing of the safe harbor deadline, then Congress decides who a state's electors are. That's absurd. That flies in the face of Article 2, Section 1. Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. 
does not authorize, the Electoral Count Act does not authorize multiple slates of electors. It provides a procedure for how to determine which slate is the real slate under state law. And if you look at the Electoral Count Act of 80, 1887, when those disputes arise, Congress has to look at state law and determine was state law followed. Um, but we don't even get there because before you get to the issue of multiple slates having been received by the president of the Senate, there's this part of the Electoral Count Act that's being completely ignored. No, elect, no electoral vote or votes from any state which shall have been regularly given by electors whose appointment has been lawfully certified according to section six of this title from which but one return has been received shall be rejected. In 2020, one return was received from the state of Georgia. One, one return made it to the president of the Senate. And if there's any argument that depends on the fact that more than one return was made, it requires evidence and there is no evidence in the record at this point. And so let's look at what through USC section six says, and I'm just gonna kind of summarize. It says that the governor ascertains who the electors are after a presidential election, that the governor issues a certificate under the seal of the state, in this case, under the seal of the state of Georgia, the governor transmits the certificate of ascertainment to Congress. That is what happened here. The governor issued not one, but two certificates of ascertainment that said that these defendants were not the presidential electors for the state of Georgia. And so Congress received one return in 2020 from Georgia. It was certified pursuant to 3 USC section six, and that ends the analysis. All this other stuff about, you know, a dispute, multiple slates, it did not, that didn't happen. We don't get there. The defendants were never duly elected and qualified, ever. And that's the real problem. Again, there was one set of votes received by the president of the Senate. There was one set of electors certified by the governor as duly elected and qualified. The Electoral Count Act only contemplates that there could be more multiple slates purporting to be legitimate. It does not authorize that. And I think I raised the argument in another brief, but I'll raise it here again. For example, Georgia's criminal code contemplates that people will commit crimes and it provides instruction on what is to be done when they do commit crimes. Because there's some instruction on what you do when a situation happens, that doesn't mean that the law authorizes it. And again, um, conclusiveness under the safe harbor provision does not mean that anyone can lawfully purport to be an elector duly elected and qualified uh, by the state of Georgia. Conclusiveness means that if certain requirements, requirements are met, it's conclusive that these are the votes. But it doesn't mean that if those requirements aren't met, then they're not the votes and Congress decides who the real votes are. That's, that's not what the, the safe harbor provision says. It's just not what it says. Also, contingent electors do not exist under federal law. And this was taken up in the federal court. I referenced it in our brief. I understand that it's persuasive authority here. Um, but there's no reference to contingent electors in any federal law cited by the defendants. The only reference to the idea of something close to a contingent office holder um, is under OCGA 212503. What that statute says is that if an election is contested, then the presumptive winner takes the office on a contingent basis. And then if the election contest is resolved against that person, then the other person comes in and takes the office not clear even that that applies to presidential electors in the first place. So this idea of contingent electors, number one, doesn't exist under federal law. 
Number two, to the extent that it might exist under state law, does not apply here. And also the defendant's safe harbor theory is incongruent with the constitution. Again, article two, section one, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. This is granting the power to the states to, to decide who their electors are. And this is fundamental to the way that we elect presidents in this country. The states get to decide who their electors are. They submit a certification, votes of those electors to Congress, and Congress counts them. Under the defendant's theory, they, their theory is that if an election contest lawsuit is filed in every state at 11.59 p.m. on the day Safe Harbor passes, Congress gets to choose who every state's electors are, every state's divested of its constitutional authority to appoint its own electors, and the will of the voters is irrelevant. So if you file a lawsuit under their theory at 11.59 p.m., there's pending litigation, safe harbor evaporates. Now Congress gets to, to decide who wins in a, a presidential election. That makes no sense. Another example, let's say 10,000 election contest lawsuits are filed in Fulton County after an election. Does that mean that the Superior Court bench has to resolve all of those cases prior to safe harbor in order to preserve Georgia's constitutional authority to appoint its electors? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I want to touch on Hawaii. We touched briefly on this and the other side touched briefly on it, but we don't believe that Hawaii is relevant in any way. The facts and circumstances are completely different. Most significantly, in the 1960 Hawaii election, both of the certificates of vote ultimately had a certificate of ascertainment attached to them. That's not the case here. These defendants never had a certificate of ascertainment saying that they were the actual voter or the actual presidential electors. Again, and I'm not going to comment on whether it was lawful or not lawful, um, what those Democratic electors did in 1960 in Hawaii, but the other sides provided no authority that says what they did was lawful. They say the Hawaii precedent. Well, there is no precedent. There was a situation that happened in a trial court, and we've had no appellate review of it. We don't know what happened there other than what happened in the trial court. There was a recount ongoing at the time. The facts are wildly different. The, the um, the lieutenant governor of Hawaii at the time who was acting as governor knew that the Democratic electors were going to meet and submit a slate of votes, and they essentially authorized them to do it. Again, I'm getting into facts, and I'm trying to stay away from facts because it's not appropriate to get into facts in this type of motion. Um, but again, it's legally and factually irrelevant that someone else wasn't prosecuted 63 years ago under different laws, different circumstances. But on, on this point, just so I, we can set bearings in your research of this, has uh, an elector or someone purporting to be an elector ever been prosecuted before? I don't know, Judge. I don't know the answer to that. But you haven't found one? I have not found one. I have not found one. Um, what I can say, I mean, if the court would like, there, that uh, the archivist changed its procedures. The National Archives changed their procedures as it relates to receiving um, certificates of vote or things that purport to be certificates of vote after the 2020 election because of what happened. And now they've added an additional procedure to their kind of checklist of what we do when we receive these. And if it looks like something is fraudulent, they refer it out to their inspector general's office to investigate. So just because it ha hasn't happened before, in our opinion, doesn't really have much effect on this case because we don't know those circumstances. Um, our position is that the motion should be denied. 
There's no provision of federal law that preempts Georgia from prosecuting election fraud. They've pointed to nothing. The, two, the, the sets of law, the bodies of law do not do the same thing. The general police power is reserved to the states, not the federal government. The Constitution expressly assigns power to regulate presidential elections to the states. And the Electoral Count Act does not in any way, while it may anticipate that multiple slates of votes might come in, it does not authorize them. It does, they've pointed to nothing in the Electoral Count Act that says, you can do this. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And so with that, I'll take any of the questions that the court might have um, and anything else, rely on the briefs. All right, thank you, Mr. Wooten. All right, just solely on this issue, was any party wanting to submit supplemental briefing? Your Honor, I would like to rebut, if I could, just a couple of points. All right. Uh, I promise I'll be Let's brief. set a time limit. Okay. Uh, why don't we just say about 10 minutes at the most? I think that, I think, right. although I am typically verbose, I think I can get that done, Your Honor. Um, there are two fundamental flaws that underpin virtually everything that Mr. Wilton just said. First of all, the state just made our point for us, Your Honor. They said they get to decide who the real electors are. And because our folks weren't real electors, that all this consequence uh, flows from that, that, we, that, that, that the, they don't get the, the protections of presidential electors. They don't get the federal protect. That is a fundamental misstatement of plain federal law. Under the ECA, unless the state meets the safe harbor, which there's no dispute they did not do in this case, both sets of electors are contingent and the governor certification upon which the state is relying has absolutely no authority for them to rely on that for them to decide who the rightful electors are. That gets decided by Congress on January 6th and not a moment before that when the state misses its state harbor. That is plainly the law under the ECA. And so the two hypotheticals outlined by Mr. Wooten about 1159 and 10,000 cases, those are just unforeseen hypotheticals in the statute? I think they are part of the reason the statute was recently changed, Your Honor, because I think there's been, if you look at the commentary and the experts on the ECA, uh, there's been a lot of consternation about the fact that you could file a, a lawsuit, but that is in Georgia's control. What the ECA says is, hey, if you state want to set up a process that allows you to get to a final decision by Safe Harbor Day, then we'll let you do that to be conclusive. Georgia can control that process. They've set up a judicial process. If they wanted that done differently, Georgia could do that. They did not do that here. And so they have truncated the ability of uh, the state of Georgia to get the benefit of the safe harbor. But no, that doesn't change what the law says about what the authority is or is not here or who the real electors are not. Their entire theory, their legal theories all flow from the fact that they believe they get to decide who the real electors are when the constitution is clear that only Congress gets to decide that. And when there is not a safe harbor decision and there's a dispute, Congress decides it on January 6th. That's why comment about Oh, well, Hawaii is different because they both ultimately got certificates of ascertainment. Well, none of them knew that on December 14th when they submitted their dual slates to, to Hawaii. So that can't possibly have any effect on the legal analysis here. The other critical flaw in the argument, Your Honor, is they fail to acknowledge what the Supreme Court has made very plain in United States term limits versus Thornton. And that is 
they don't get the benefit of traditional or reserved powers. They don't get the benefit because presidential electors are created by the constitution. And therefore there is no 10th amendment reserve, reserve power. There is no traditional police power that applies to them. They must articulate a specific constitutional delegation that authorizes them to act with presidential electors. They have not, and they cannot. The law does not support their description of what the appointment power is. We've gone through that. I'm not gonna go through it again. We will certainly submit anything the court wants and our PowerPoint presentations, but that description of the appointment power as unbounded is entirely inconsistent with the law, with the constitution and with Supreme Court precedent. And I didn't hear you address the, the in, in Ray Green case and the language that the state cited in that. Yeah, I think we talked about that earlier, Your Honor. I believe the Green case is in the same bucket as the, the Chiapolo case, that it, it is grounded in the appointment power. I have to confess, I've read a lot of cases. I get some of them confused, but I'd be happy to submit something on that, Your Honor. But I believe Green, Chiafalo, Ray, and maybe even Burroughs all are grounded specifically in the appointment power. Um, the idea that Congress would say, we don't permit anybody to send dual slates, but we're gonna talk about how we're gonna handle it five different times in one section defies any credibility. Their ability to count includes their ability to adjudicate and they can't adjudicate what they can't count. They clearly are permitting people to submit it, whether they're mandated to or not, have a duty to it or not, they're allowing them to. ACA is plain that they're allowed to. And that is that, that just really can't be um, disputed. Um, also, the idea that the law doesn't talk about contingent electors, well, yeah, we've come up with that term, but it clearly does anticipate that there will be some electors that are certified, for example, by the governor and some that might be certified by the legislature. And here's how we're gonna deal with that. There might be ballots and papers purporting to be ballots. So whatever you wanna call that, you know, Congress might call it purported electors under the language they have used. It doesn't matter. It's plainly addressed and allowed under the ECA and that is the point. Um, to the point we we're making about in Ray Green and Chiafalo, Your Honor, the, the state cites more versus Harper. And I think there's just a fundamental misunderstanding there. The, nobody disputes that the state gets to act broadly in its appointment power. It's just, that's not what it's done here. Same thing with Harper, they get to act broadly in their control over elections that is also specifically given to them under the constitution. That has nothing to do with what the boundaries of those powers are and how far outside of them they are here. And I mean, I hear that I've heard, seen this in the other arguments, but it's very frustrating to have gone through at length, multiple sites to precedent, multiple sites to statutes, multiple sites to all of that, and then have the state say, we've cited no authority for this and no authority. If by no authority, you mean the constitution itself Supreme Court precedent and federal statutory sections ad nauseum, then yes, we've cited nothing. But if that is not what you mean, then we have cited all kinds of authority that countermands the authority they have cited and they have not addressed the authority that we have cited. Let me check with my team just real quick and see if there's anything else we need to address. Okay. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, ma'am. Judge, if I may just, um, there were a couple arguments that were raised in the PowerPoint that I don't know that they appeared in the brief. So we would request um, maybe 10 days to, to provide any supplement to those arguments. All right, and any from the defense? I think if they uh, submit something, Your Honor, we'd like the opportunity to re respond if we think it's necessary, since it is our motion. 
All right. So if the state, uh, we could have that by COB on the 15th. Yes, Judge. And we can set a reply to the reply, sort of rebuttal <laughs> um, by, I mean, I think at that point you're running into perhaps your break, but. Um, all right, let's get back into it. If we're all here and ready, we'll be back on the record. And I believe we are now transitioning into the First Amendment. So who's got that on the defense side? Your Honor, I, I do. And if I can approach, I've got uh, copies of the PowerPoint. Thank you, sir. And if I can get permission to share my screen. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I, should, I should do this, though, at the outset, since I didn't do it the last time. How long do you anticipate? <laughs> well, the, uh, my colleagues don't think I can get it done in less than an hour. I'm going to shoot for 30 minutes, but we'll, so we'll okay. say 45. Well, 45 was what I was hoping I'd hear. Okay. Okay. So with that, um, floor is yours. All right, Your Honor. As it says on the beginning of the PowerPoint, the indictment here imposes an unconstitutional restraint on the free speech of the defendants in this case. More importantly, it imposes an unconstitutional restriction on their First Amendment um, political speech. If you look at the indictment, what it says in its introduction, it tells us what the state is targeting. It says that Donald Trump lost the presidential election on November the 3rd. One of the states he lost was Georgia and Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost and that they knowingly and willfully joined in a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election. So what that tells us and what the entirety of the rest of the indictment says is that the state is attacking the challenges, speech, concerns, and efforts that the defendants here took with regard to their belief in the 2020 presidential election. The state wants to jail the defendants, and it tells us this, for not accepting those results, for not accepting that <clears throat> President Trump lost, and for not agreeing that Georgia's vote counting process was pristine. According to the state and its indictments, any and all challenges that the defendants made, any and all legal theories that they came up with to support their position, and all discussions that the defendants undertook discussing those positions are knowingly and willfully false. And the state says that, and we heard this with regard to the ECA because the state says it. And the state says that speech to the contrary, that the election had a problem, that there were vote counting issues or anything else, the state says that that is prosecutable. And that is the problem. <clears throat> the indictment is seeking to prosecute the defendants with regard to the political speech. And the fact that it's political speech is extremely important here. And the when you go through the indictment, and I did, and you look at every single count that relates to the defendants that are sitting in this courtroom or the lawyers that are, you look at every single act of the indictment that <coughs> supports count one in the RICO case, all of it relates to speech. They say in pages 16 to 17, that talks about the methods and manners of the RICO enterprise, that it is the problem is that the defendants spoke to Senate legislators, high-ranking government officials, the courts, Justice Department officials, and the Vice President of the United States to plead their case with regard to the 2020 election. 
They say that the defendants made statements regarding the presidential election in courts, on television, voicemail, press conferences, and with public officials at subcommittee meetings in front of the Georgia General Assembly. And that's noted in the, in the materials that I gave you. They attempt to preserve a challenge to the 2020 election by voting the electoral, uh, by voting for the, uh, the electoral slate. They say that that's a violation, even though Bush versus Gore allows it in the ECA, but it's a challenge, it's an electoral challenge to what was going on in this state very shortly after the election occurred. And they say that raising concerns of the election process before these subcommittees were criminal in nature. Every single count, and if they can show me something different, they, they can get up here and do it. But every single count of the complaint, every single act in the indictment relates to that political speech regarding probably the most important election in 2020, the presidential election. And the state does not attempt to, in its briefing or anywhere else, argue that it is attacking anything other than political speech, nor could it credibly do so. Because all of the speech that was made related to the propriety and outcomes of the presidential election. Here, there is no allegation of bribery. There's no ballot stuffing. There's no preventing somebody from going to vote. There is no violence. This isn't the January 6th case. Everything that they are targeting are words that are coming out of the defendant's mouths, actions that they took with regard to the presidential election. And again, I think that's very well established in the four corners of the complaint. The reason that's important is that political speech, political <clears throat> speech is given the highest level of protection of any speech that the courts look at. As a floor, the U.S. Constitution, Amendment 1, Georgia Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, Paragraph 5. They protect free speech, and that's free association, right to petition government, and expressive conduct. And I'll put a footnote in here. The Georgia Constitution is even broader than the federal Constitution, according to our Supreme Court. And all of those cases, and I'm going to get into them, the United States Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, and the Georgia Supreme Court, there is a special place for political speech. And all of the cases that look at political speech say almost uniformly that there is almost no restrictions that the state can put on that speech <clears throat> that is going to pass constitutional muster. As the, 11, as the Supreme Court said in the Edwards case, the U.S. Constitution does not permit the state to make criminal the peaceful, peaceful expression of unpopular views. And here, while the defendants and the indictment, I'm sorry, while the indictment says, and we can accept this is true, while the indictment says that there were false statements, there were fraudulent intent, bad motives, all of these things, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that those types of statements, even if false, do not allow the state to regulate them in the context of an election. I think that one of the best cases that we cite in the briefs is this case called Arneson. And it's coming out of the Eighth Circuit 
And the reason I think Arneson is helpful is because it deals with very much the issue that's before the court, and it kind of acts as a law review by compiling a lot of different uh, Supreme Court cases. But Minnesota passed a law, and the law said that if anybody makes a knowingly false or recklessly or a false statement, so you know it's false, recklessly false, no good in the statement. That if you make that with regard in for or against a ballot initiative, and the court says ballot initiative equals election of a candidate, that if you make that statement, you will go to jail. And Minnesota said, listen, we have a strong and compelling state interest to protect our elections from knowing a reckless false speech. We want to make sure that ballot initiatives, again, equal election, that they are pristine, that that all of the comments and statements to them are true and accurate. And if you don't do that, we're going to put you in jail. The state said we're protecting the integrity of the process. All we're going after is false and fraudulent speech. And the Eighth Circuit, consistent with the United States Supreme Court in other cases, said no. They said that that statute, which was just targeting that speech, was unconstitutional. They started off and saying, listen, as a general matter, the First Amendment says that the government has no power to restrict speech because of its message, idea, subject matter, or content. Now, that's devolved into a bunch of different types, political, commercial, and other speech. But as a floor, the First Amendment says that the government cannot do that. And that any attempt by the state to restrict political speech, when we're going to look at it, has to be reviewed under a strict scrutiny analysis. Now, the strict scrutiny analysis is what ends up meaning that when most courts look at this, all of the political speech, the attempts to criminalize, the statutory restrictions are shut down. This is a little bit different from intermediate speech, intermediate scrutiny. Intermediate scrutiny is what they looked at in Alvarez. And in Alvarez, which is cited, is the Stolen Valor Act case. And in Alvarez, the defendant in that case said, listen, I'm a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. Lie. Absolute lie. And the Supreme Court looked at it and they said, well, yeah, it's a lie. But the First Amendment, even under intermediate scrutiny, is going to say, we're not going to criminalize that activity. We're going to allow him to say that. So even under intermediate scrutiny, there's tons of protections. But then it gets ratcheted up when you're dealing with political speech, which is what this is. And the A Circuit, again, <laughs> quoting from United States Supreme Court case, said that when you go ahead and you apply strict scrutiny, There is going to be almost no amount of fine tailoring that a government can do with its prosecution or a statute that can override the overwhelming free speech protections speech. And they say that because a criminal prosecution of political speech is particularly dangerous, quoting Judge Breyer, and consequently it can result in easily result in censorship of speakers speakers rather than their ideas. 
So what they're saying here is they are saying, listen, I get it. There is an interest in having there's an interest in having some type of restrictions on the manner of speech that we have on elections. We want to have good outcomes here. But we're going to weigh that against the chilling effect of restricting that speech as it relates to the elections. And the Constitution and the Supreme Court have said, we're going to put up with a heck of a lot of speech before we quiet it because the result of telling somebody or prosecuting somebody for saying something about an election that a DA disagrees with is terribly, terribly dangerous in our society. And we're going to potentially <clears throat> shut down all of that speech with regard to dissonant or descendant dis, uh, views we don't agree with. <laughs> I'll get the word out. Uh, if if I'm if there's a dissenting opinion, dissenting. Here. Thank you. Um, the cases, the, the kind of the window setting and yes. the um, or scene setting rather, and these broad principles you're referring to in, in these cases, most of these aren't they facial challenges where they're striking down a statute in its entirety that is solely and very obviously targeting speech. Well, I think I think that that's right, but I think that you can attack the indictment here and the statutes under which it's charged upon just within the four corners of the complaint. Again, we're going to accept everything in there that they say is true, but even when we're accepting everything that they say in there is true, it doesn't reach up to these, and, the, and they are broad principles. But just, just so I'm clear yes. what lane we're in, though. Yes. The argument isn't like many of these cases that we read about and that mm -hmm. establishes principles that this, the fraud statute Right. It has to go away. It's as applied here. Mm -hmm. It's unconstitutional. As applied here is unconstitutional. Yes. So we have to get over that first hurdle of whether we can make an as applied challenge, which, I, you know, I think that you've pointed out some some case law we didn't consider the first go around. Right. And, and I think I, that some of these statutes can be attacked facially. But yes, it's as applied here. OK, well, and, let, maybe we should start there. Then what, what statutes do you think we can attack facially? Like I think that 161020 should be attacked facially. Okay. Um, Haley makes that hard, but uh, I think that it, it should be attacked facially. Uh, that probably is, the rest of them would be as applied. And then the next thing, Your Honor, again, kind of going, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh. <clears throat> and once we decide that this is, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Once we decide that it is political speech, both the state and the legislature have a duty to do two things. They have to show that there is a compelling state interest with regard to what they are, what they are doing. And they also have to show that the restrictions on the speech are as narrowly possible. So that's what I'm getting held up on again, yes. because that whole line of analysis the legislature has nothing to do with this, right? Because the statute is what it is. Right. So in terms of whether it's been narrowly tailored or whatnot, if we're as applied, that, that, that's not really coming in, right? No, it, I mean, I, you're right with regard to the attack on the statute, but what I'm getting at is the prosecution here. And the point being with regard to all the statutes that are at issue and everything that they're prosecuting is that as applied, none of them can stand because, and I'm about to get to this, 
because there is counter speech available and the counter speech that's available. And that's discussed, you know, a lot in Arneson. What the courts say is, listen, if you have debate and you have false speech, the Supreme Court has said, listen, the remedy for speech that is false is speech that is true. This is the ordinary course in a free society. And the response to the unreasoned is the rational, the uninformed, the enlightened, the straight out lie, the simple truth. And what happened in Arneson is that the court said, listen, if you say something false with regard to this ballot referendum, somebody else is going to pick up the ball and say something true. And you're going to have an invigorated debate about those issues, and that'll wash out in the election. What do we know about this case? Every single thing, every act, every count that's talked about in this case was published in real time was very, very hotly contested. There was more than enough, a ton of counter speech. And what happened? What happened is the court challenges were resolved. Joe Biden was put into presidency in January of 2021. <clears throat> and we were done. But I don't know if the that counter... legally makes a distinction because if as the state's theory as alleged had succeeded, mm -hmm. you wouldn't then stay here. I would presume that a prosecution is now greenlit under these same principles. Under these same, I'm sorry. If, if, it, if it's violating free speech regardless, right. it doesn't matter whether it was successful or not. No, right? it doesn't matter whether it's successful. No, no, that's exactly right. All I'm saying is that part of the American experience is saying, listen, we're going to allow, it doesn't matter whether it's successful or not. Absolutely right. But what I'm saying is that the counter speech here that was available led to a result that apparently the state wants. And the counter to robust debate, court cases, and you got a result. And that is what the framers were trying to protect. That's what Arneson was trying to protect. That's what the United States Supreme Court is trying to protect in virtually every single case that they talk about. And I've noted here that when you look at the various cases, and I've cited a ton, these are, these are a, a hand, I mean, you can, you can cite Supreme Court cases and First Amendment cases all day long. <clears throat> But in all of these cases that the Supreme Court raises when it relates to political speech, it is almost invariably going to fall out on the side of let the speech occur, even if it's false, even if it's fraudulent, when it's in the course of an election and especially a presidential election, and especially when you're going to have people on the other side going at it, hammer and tongs to figure out what is what is the truth. When, and when you say even yes. as with fraudulent, do you mean even if false? Even if false, yes, okay. excuse me. Even if false, even if false. And the Supreme Court has come again and again and again and said that this type of speech, we're going to protect it, we're going to... And the state here in its indictment 
the entire premise is, well, what you're saying is false. What you're saying is wrong. As of December the 3rd, when you have a result in the election, you ought to have known that Joe Biden was the winner. And because you said Joe Biden's not the winner and because you filed a lawsuit and you had electors go and vote and because you got on TV or did a tweet or came up with a legal theory, we want to put you in jail. That is anathema to our history and it's anathema to the First Amendment. And I also cite cases here with regard to Georgia that are in accord. And, you know, Your Honor, before I kind of jump ahead, um, we talked a little bit about whether resolution is ripe. The, the Georgia Supreme Court in a series of cases have said that even if you have an as-applied challenge, you need to decide that case up front involves a First Amendment constitutional challenge, maybe not the same with other constitutional challenges. It also says that the court can consider a demur based solely on the state's averments, and that's all we're asking here. We're not asking for anything else other than what's in the four corners of the complaint. And so <clears throat> taking all that, and I've, I've, I've truncated it quite a bit, but if you look at the cases, if you look at what's in the indictment, this isn't close. The defendant's statements and actions here are challenging the processes of the 2020 presidential election. It is political free speech. Once we know that it's political free speech, subject to uh, strict scrutiny, the state tries to impose a viewpoint restriction on the defendants. You did not accept that Donald Trump won. And the entirety of the indictment is focused upon punishing defendants for that speech. And the state cannot pro show that the prosecution is narrowly tailored or that any of the statutes in the indictment are narrowly tailored, especially when you have counter speech here that is available. And the First Amendment absolutely precludes any of the state's claims here. And I think one thing that I wanted to Hold on one second. All right, got it. Um, is we are in the throes of this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hot. It's emotional. It is something that is topical. And we think this is the first time America has ever gone through this process. It's not. It just is not. I was down in Florida in 2000 for the recount of the Bush versus Gore election. That resulted in the Secretary of State, remember the criticism she got, the Attorney General of Florida running around, decisions of the Florida Supreme Court, hotly contested, uh, is this ballot fraudulent? Is that counting fraudulent? It goes up to the United States Supreme Court. It, the la it lasts until almost January of 2001, about as long as this challenge lasts. And the Supreme Court, in a decision that a lot of people roundly criticize, say, this is the result, it's over. President Bush did not indict President Gore and his supporters for making those challenges. That was their political speech and it resolved through the courts and through the political process as it should have. And when I'm thinking about, you know, when else did this happen again? What happened in Georgia? It's kind of a history buff type thing. 
but we probably have all heard that in 1946 or 47, you had the elected governor of Georgia die before he got into office. It's called the three governors controversy. And at that point in time, the Georgia General Assembly said his son, Herman Talmadge, we're going to make him governor. The duly elected lieutenant governor said, no, I get to be governor since I was duly elected as lieutenant governor. The sitting governor, Ellis Arnold, said, I'm going to hang around and I'm going to be governor. The Georgia Supreme Court weighed in, allegations of fraud, allegations of false statements, allegations that this just ain't right. And the Supreme Court said, well, it's going to be the lieutenant governor. But the members of the General Assembly that said it was Herman Talmadge, they didn't go to jail. Herman Talmadge didn't go to jail. Ellis Arnold didn't go to jail because they were advocating for a position that got worked out through the political process. In 1876, this is probably one of the craziest ones, Hayes versus Tilden. This led to the enactment of the ECA. Tilden was the popular winner. He was one vote shy in the electoral, in the electoral uh, court, electoral count. And Congress disallowed that one electoral vote from Oregon. <clears throat> they then didn't know who it was. At least according to the research I've done, this almost led to a second civil war. You have Congress put together a 15-member panel to figure out who's going to be the president, and it ultimately gets decided in a hotel room. Nobody went to jail. Very recently in Georgia history, the Kemp versus Abrams uh, governor's election. Stacey Abrams said Brian Kemp didn't win. He illegitimately won. The election was based upon voter suppression. Numerous lawsuits won. She lost every one of those lawsuits. Stacey Abrams wasn't prosecuted, nor should she have been. Al Gore, Abrams, Kennedy, Tilden, Talmadge, members of the General Assembly. They are not prosecuted because what they were doing even though they were pointing fingers back and forth saying, you're committing false statements. I'm the governor. You're the governor. I'm the president. No, you're the. Those came out in public and they were hotly contested. And the First Amendment protected all of that speech. But once we start punishing people, once we start punishing people, for taking the positions and challenging elections. I've challenged lots of elections in 25 years of practice. I've been involved in tilting at a lot of windmills. Once we start saying that you are going to go to jail for doing that, those types of challenges are going to dry up. And that is precisely why the First Amendment and the Supreme Court have said, you can't do it. And to get to a question that your honor asked earlier, when has this ever happened in our history? Didn't happen with Tilden and Hayes. Didn't happen with Jefferson and Adams. Didn't happen with Bush versus Gore. Didn't happen with Kemp versus Abrams. This is it. This is the first time that 
a prosecution of this type has been brought in this country as far as I'm aware. And I heard my friends on the other side said they're not aware of one either. And the reason that these lawsuits, and that's a due process problem, but the reason these lawsuits haven't been brought is because the First Amendment says you can't bring them. We're going to allow the we're going to allow the discourse. We're going to allow the statements, even if they're false, because somebody's false statement is another person's truth. And we might be able to prove something down the road. We might have this argument. But once we start letting the winners put people in jail, we're done. We are done. And that our framers said, we're not going to allow. That is what the Supreme Court said during the civil rights movement when people were making, you know, you're, you're violating the peace. You're saying something that we disagree with. You are making statements about these types of civil rights issues. You got to go to jail because, you know, you're standing on a public piece of property and you can't be there. The Supreme Court repeatedly says no, whether it's your action, your petition to government, your speech, we're not going to allow the state to come in and say, you go to jail because we disagree. It is about as strong a presumption. It is about as strong a piece of law that we have in this country. And again, the reason we've never seen it before is because this is unprecedented. We can have all kinds of disagreements about candidates, all kinds of disagreements about policy, whether or not we think that what they did was morally right, good, bad, or indifferent. But we don't jail people over this in this country. Your Honor, and then the very last thing I'll say is I think we especially don't jail people when they go and they give their statements to their elected officials and say, hey, I see a problem. Will you guys look into this problem? I see a concern. Will you look into the concern? That's the people you're supposed to go to. Go to jail, says the state. No, I say, and no, says the First Amendment. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Nolowitz. Your Honor, may I address one specific I raised in the uh, <clears throat> Good afternoon. I do not intend to reiterate anything that's already been said uh, by co-defendant's counsel. He did a phenomenal job. I just want to make certain that the record reflects that we, that is President Trump, is suggesting to the court that your persuasive authority in the order that you entered in the, in the matters of uh, Chesbro and Powell, specifically finding that the First Amendment as applied could not be done pretrial, Georgia precedent barred uh, such a challenge, uh, that you reconsider that um, as the authority. Instead, take a look at the case that I have cited as well as has been cited uh, by co-defendants counsel. That's the Hall case. So, so in the Hall case, I think it was maybe only three or four sentences, but there was an aspect of that where the state was willing to say, these are the facts. And that gave the Supreme Court something to play with. True. And so Mr. Nolowitz here says, we want you to apply it just based on the indictment. 
where do you fall there? I, I believe that if the state wanted to stipulate the facts that are clear, um, we would be willing to do that. They've not indicated any desire to stipulate anything. I believe you can do it simply on the indictment and the accusationary facts, those that are alleged. I think that's what the quote that I used from Hall indicates. You take the facts as alleged in the indictment throughout the RICO count. And when you do that as applied constitutionally with the First Amendment, you find that it violates free speech, freedom of uh, petitioning, all the expressions that the First Amendment is designed to protect, and therefore the indictment needs to be dismissed. I'm saying you can do that pre-trial. If the state wants to stipulate the certain facts so that we actually can have this issue drawn in a clearer fashion for the court, we're more than willing to do that, but they don't need to. The accusation, the, in, the uh, uh, indictment alone is sufficient. And I think that's what Hall indicates. And I'd ask you to reconsider that particular part of the order. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Sado. <laughs> Uh, let's, why don't we go ahead and begin with the state's argument and we'll see where we land. I know we had some other councils stepping in at 1.30 around there, but maybe Mr. Wooten, if you're taking this argument, we can pick it up right there okay. with the Hall case, which was not one any party raised at the outset, uh, but it certainly seems on point on this issue. Judge, I just would request um, to be able to screen share. I don't think I've got the um, uh, you, privileges. Yeah. All right, so we need Mr. Wooten as an yeah. admin. Thank you, Judge. And I will just <clears throat> jump right into Hall, Judge. As you pointed out, um, state's position is that Hall does not apply here. It was an as-applied challenge. It was taken up uh, prior to trial, but as the court pointed out, there was at least some set of facts that was not in dispute. So not only, and as the, the court indicated, the, the the state indicated what it believed the facts would be, and that was part one, but also the defendant did not contest those facts. And as the court pointed out in its order on the prior hearing on this issue, all of these facts are, are very, very, very contested. You can well, look but at- But I think what I heard was Mr. Sadow and, and the defendants here <laughs> saying that just for the purposes of an as-applied challenge, they would be conceding the facts as laid out in the indictment? Perhaps not the part where it says everything's unlawful, uh, but the, the the facts is alleged. And then I know there was a, this was a 4-3 decision, I know, and so there was a, a vigorous dissent, but there's the statement in here where Justice Sears appears to say that as applied challenges should be allowed pre-indictment. What, what do you make of that? Well, Judge, I think you hit on something important, which is that if they're not willing to to stipulate to all of the allegations, the intent requirement, the unlawfulness, all of it. You can't, you can't stipulate to some of the facts that don't establish the offense and say, let's make a decision. I think that's not congruent with Hall. I think in Hall, there were facts that were stipulated to that, but for the constitutional challenge, established the essential elements of the offense. Um, and then the examination was able to be made on that limited set of facts. And so here, I mean, as an example, let's take a false statement. I think that they would have to stipulate and not, again, our position is that they can't stipulate just for the purpose of this argument. If the fact is stipulated to, it's stipulated to in the entire matter is our position. Um, they'd have to stipulate that for a false statement that 
the statement was false, that it was within the jurisdiction of a department or agency of state government. They knew it was false. Beyond, going beyond just the allegations and the indictment, going to, you know, things that they've indicated in their uh, pleadings are required to it uh, for a conviction. They'd have to agree that they knew that those statements would come to the attention of a department or agency, et cetera. So I don't know that they're willing. To me, that sounds like a guilty plea. Well, let's well, let's pause there for the purposes of an as applied First Amendment challenge. Mr. Nolowitz, uh, any thoughts on, on what facts? <clears throat> if we're just looking at the four corners, corners, plural of this indictment, uh, what facts are to be stipulated to or agreed to? I mean, I, I think he's right. I'm not going to stipulate the veracity of the facts for all purposes going forward. I think that we'll that's just for the purposes of an as-applied First Amendment challenge. As-applied First Amendment challenge. That everything in here is alleged. Everything in here, I mean, again, we're not stipulating to it for trial or for evidence if they are for. But if you were to look at everything in that indictment and say, just like on a civil motion to dismiss, we're going to take as true everything in there. It doesn't stand under a first amendment. Which you just your general general demur framework, right? Mr. Sadow, is there anything you wanted to add there? I would echo that position and have done so in my motion itself, indicating that for purposes of the First Amendment as applied challenge, it's undisputed as to the allegations of Vermont's in the indictment. Okay. Mr. Wooten, back to you. Judge Hall does not say that the defendant in that case stipulated for the purpose of an as applied challenge. It says that they did not contest the facts, period. So our position is that you don't get to, you know, stipulate to the facts here, but then contest them here. We, we do not, I heard from the other side, you do in a demur, but this is not a demur. This is, an, this is essentially a plea in bar based on a constitutional challenge. It's not the same thing. Um, and to be clear, in a demur, the other side is not stipulating that the facts are true. The court is taking them as true in making its determination as to whether or not you know, the, the indictment is sufficiently pled. So our position is that, he, that there's no such thing as stipulate for the purpose of just this. That doesn't do it. Um, that they would have to stipulate, again, not just to what's alleged in the indictment, but the proof that would be shown at trial. Because an as-applied challenge looks at more than just the indictment. It looks... I mean, that's what your honor exactly pointed out in your initial order on this, is that you can't go just by the indictment. And in Hall, they don't go just by the indictment. There are some additional facts that are stipulated to. And so I don't think that that works. The state's position is that that approach does not work, that the court still um, is not able to make a determination, even if they stipulate for the purposes um, of that motion that that these things are true we don't think that that's a, i don't think that's the thing you can do i don't think you can say you know we're going to halfway stipulate either you do or you don't either the fact is stipulated it is a fact established in the record as true by stipulation or it's not it's not it's not a thought exercise and then hall it's <laughs> they agree that the facts are true unequivocally that's it and so state's position is hall does not apply here because that is not what's happened here I'm going to move to the other uh, case cited by Mr. Sadow. That's State v. Davis. He cites that as precedent. That's, that's a facial attack. Um, and as, again, as the court well knows, a facial attack is presumptively ripe. Um, the argument in a facial attack is that it could never be applied constitutionally, so there's no need for a development of a factual record. Um, so we agree with the court in its 
first order on this issue that these issues are just not right. There is not a fact, there's no facts in the record as it relates to, I mean, there's some facts as it relates to some collateral issues, bond revocation, et cetera, but there is in no testimony under oath, no evidence, no exhibits admitted. There's no facts in the record. And so the court cannot make the determination at this point. Um, I do want to hit on a few things, um, just bigger picture. You know, we heard from the other side, these grand statements about this is a prosecution of political speech. This is a prosecution of expression. This is a prosecution of association, petition, et cetera. That is not true. And the indictment tells you so. This is a prosecution for violating the Georgia RICO Act. Individuals conspiring to participate in a pattern of racketeering activity while associated with a criminal enterprise. It's a prosecution for solicitation of violation of both of office, false statements and writings impersonating public officers, and the list goes on and on. Some of these are crimes involving expression. Some of them are not. Conspiracy is not a crime involving expression. It's a crime involving a corrupt agreement. Um, and the crimes that do involve expression are specifically, we, we have specific authorization from the Georgia Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court to prosecute that type of speech. Um, and again, looking at Alvarez, the First Amendment does not protect a few historic categories of speech, including speech integral to criminal conduct, fraud, speech presenting some grave and imminent threat the government has the power to protect or to prevent. Um, and Haley, as the other side pointed out, again, holding that 161020 is constitutional on its face. And so I bring this up to say that I'm going to go back two slides. Even if these, any, any of these issues are ripe, as a general matter, the defendants aren't telling the court what they want it to do because you don't get to come in and just say the prosecution is unconstitutional. That's not how a, a constitutional challenge works. What statutes are unconstitutional? It's how an as applied challenge works, though. Well, they're not saying, Judge, which statutes are being applied in an unconstitutional way. I mean, I guess we've heard all of them, all of them. Um, but we haven't seen any analysis in the briefing or in the argument of how each specific count is applied unconstitutionally. Has that criminal statute applied to it unconstitutionally? And so the state's position is that if the court's willing to entertain that argument, we'd ask that uh, you make the other side reduce those arguments to writing, give us the opportunity to respond. They weren't in the briefs. And so I don't really know how we can respond to a blanket constitutional challenge that doesn't have any specifics, doesn't talk about statutes, doesn't analyze specific facts. There are no facts in the record, of course, um, but, but we don't get that analysis of exactly how each of these counts are being prosecuted in an unconstitutional as applied way. It's just not there. Um, we heard from the other side that this is the first time a prosecution of this type has been brought, that it's unprecedented, and that may be true. But this is the first time someone has a criminal enterprise has gotten together and tried to overturn the results of an election. So I don't think that's a particularly persuasive argument that this is the first time a case like this has been brought. There's going to be a first time a case under any statute or any situation is going to be brought. And that doesn't make it unconstitutional. And again, Judge, I promise I keep it brief. Um, our position is that these issues aren't ripe. Um, that the speech or the other expressive conduct that forms the basis for the charge is not protected by the First Amendment. The U.S. Supreme Court has told us that over and over again. The Georgia Supreme Court told us that specifically as it relates to 161020. Um, 
And they're just not sufficiently particularized. We, as the court pointed out, it's like, is this a facial attack? Is this an as-applied attack? We bounce back and forth and the state just can't meaningfully respond until they've identified specifically what is being attacked. I'll take any questions other than that. I'm, nothing further. Thank you, Mr. Wooten. Thanks. Very briefly, Your Honor, again, with reference to the Alvarez case, the Arneson case talks about it and says that, yeah, these certain types of false speech we're not going to give protection to under an intermediate level of scrutiny. But once it gets involved in political speech, yes, we do. The First Amendment covers them. Other thing, just two quotes. A prosecution motivated, motivated by a desire to discourage expression protected by the First Amendment is barred by the U.S. Constitution, and it must be enjoined or dismissed, irrespective of whether the challenged action could possibly be found to be unlawful. That's in our brief. U.S. versus PHE 965, Fed 2nd 848. Freedom of speech is protected not only against heavy-handed frontal attack, but also from being, subtle, uh, being stifled by more subtle government interference, such as via post hoc prosecutions for political expression and activities under the guise of enforcing general criminal prosecutions. That's in our brief, and they have not been addressed here. It is staggering to me, staggering, that the state would stand up and say, we accept every allegation for the purposes of this indictment. We'll accept them all as true. And they can't defend it under the First Amendment. But where in there is there non-political speech? How are you defending this? If, if everything you say is true, it's ripe for decision. That's what Hall says. And they're not defending it. One thing I wanted to point out, and I should have pointed out in my original argument, and it's in our brief as well. All this is in our brief. They decided not to respond to it. It's in our reply brief too. Is the state has looked at, and this goes to the unprecedented nature of this. The state is saying, listen, you have violated the election laws of the state. You are interfering with the uh, way in which presidential electors are chosen, voter challenges are made. There is a place it's called Title 21 of the Georgia Code, 600 annotated pages. I looked at it. I've read it. I know it. 90 sections talking about fraud, uh, prosecutions, felonies, misdemeanors. That code, those actions that the General Assembly put together to ensure that we have free and fair elections in this state doesn't make its way into the indictment. Not one place. Rather than looking at the state election code, they turn to Title 16, RICO, lying to officers. And they sit there and they try to mold these other statutes into a crime related to the elections of this state. And it's a bad fit. And it's a bad fit for all the reasons that we have said. 
And had the General Assembly wanted to prosecute the types of things that the DA is saying, it probably would have done so. It would have done so in the election code. And had it done so, I'd be sitting there saying that's unconstitutional. Thank you, Your Honor. Again, I will be specific. I've taken another look at Hall and I search for the word stipulate, doesn't exist. Hall had nothing to do with stipulations. It had to do with a determination to be made on the record that was presented to the trial court. In fact, the opinion points out, because this matter is being reviewed following the trial court's denial of Appellant Hall's motion to quash the accusations against her, the underlying facts have not been fully developed. The state represents to the court, and then it talks about what the state's representations are. It does not speak in terms of what the defendant, Hall, stipulated to. As I said, it's not even in there. But I think the footnote itself, which I've mentioned in my motion, and you go to footnote number two, is most telling. It indicates the dissent urges that in considering Hall's vagueness challenge, which we understand to be the First Amendment challenge there, which would echo or mirror our First Amendment challenge here on freedom of speech, we are limited to the allegations of fact appearing in the indictment. What this means to me, and I'm suggesting to the court, is that all seven justices were in agreement that you can take the allegations of fact in the indictment and make a determination of an as-applied constitutional challenge. The dissent's only issue was other facts were being considered. We don't want other facts being considered. We are more than willing and have indicated on the record that we will agree for purposes of a First Amendment challenge that the allegations, averments, facts in the indictment are to be taken as true for purposes of that challenge and that challenge alone. It's exactly what Hall suggests it's exactly what seven justices would have agreed on based on the footnote number two. Uh, and therefore we ask the court to find it right to be considered. If additional briefing then becomes necessary, once the court deems it appropriate to consider it as applied, both sides can present our position to the court, um, much of which has already been done so by co-defendants counsel, but then we can issue um, briefs and the court can determine law uh, based on the allegations in the indictment as applied. Thank you. In, and so Mr. Sado on that point, I would say that the one of the goals were, uh, and purposes today is to complete our record on these issues. So I think that if um, your or any other uh, co-defendant's intention is to make a as applied challenge firmly under the facts as a in the indictment, this would be the time to do it. So not right, right now, but through briefing. I was going right. to say, that uh, might open this up a in the pretrial stage. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. How much time would you give us to do that? Sir? Uh, I wonder if we could stay on the same briefing timeline as we had with um, Mr. Schaefer's counsel. I believe that was 10 days. Uh, no, I think it was a little bit longer than that. We had the state replying in that instance. We it on the 15th. And then any rebuttal or sir rebuttal, whatever we want to call it, by the 2nd. Seems appropriate. Everyone agree? All right. We're just, just to be clear, is that 
I think you're. I, I think they they would be going first since he's saying that they are doing a more specific as applied challenge based on the facts of this indictment, and then the state would have the ability um, by the second to respond. I recognize that that is a time when most folks are off. So if the state needs more time and wants to ask for it, we can take it up then. Okay. And judge, um, just to be clear, would those supplemental briefs also include the issue of ripeness? Any additional argument on the issue of ripeness? It can include whatever you wanted to. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And if the court will permit, we'll try to do one consolidated brief, um, if that's agreeable to all counsel. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's transition over. I believe we should have, uh, we had noticed for counsel for Mr. Meadows and Mr. Clark. I don't know if they were appearing in, they're both in person. All right. Is there any way we could make some room at council? I know we're a bit tight here, but okay. Well then there you have it. We're going to start with Mr. Meadows. All right, sir. If you can introduce and, and yourself for the record. Yes. Jim Durham uh, for Mr. Meadows. And judge, for the record, I think I need 90 seconds. Okay. And your, and your client has waived his presence here today? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, simply, Your Honor, we're uh, just asking uh, for an extension of our deadlines. Um, the 11th Circuit has taken, uh, we, you know, Mr. Meadows believes he's, this case, as it relates to him, uh, should be in federal court. Um, I know we have deadlines of December the 4th. Um, as it relates to discovery, we have deadlines as it relates to pretrial motions on January the 8th, and we've asked simply for an extension uh, as it relates to discovery February 1st, 2024, as it relates to motions March the 1st. 11th Circuit has taken this on an expedited uh, review or argument uh, on our appeal is December the 15th. We're hopeful that the 11th Circuit based on their expedited review is gonna have an opinion within uh, a month or two. And for that reason, we'd rather not be litigating in two separate courts time. Don't think it's gonna prejudice the government as it relates to other trials that have already been set involving co-defendants, uh, federal case up in DC, federal case down in Florida, and even the DA's office has suggested a trial in August. And I know your honor has um, contemplated the possibility of, of multiple trials in this case uh, as it relates to, you know, severing particular defendants and trying them separately. I don't think this uh, is a big ask. Don't think it prejudices uh, the state at all. So just to be clear, unlike Mr. Clark's motion, it's not so much you're saying, hey, we don't have the bandwidth. It's we just would rather be doing this where we believe the case ought to be. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, if we, if we win in the 11th circuit, it's a clean slate. Um, you know, it's going to, it's going to uh, preserve some of your resources uh, for sure. So you wouldn't have to rule on any of the motions that we file. We anticipate we would file a number of pretrial motions. Um, and if you rule on them and we go to 11th circuit, then the slate's going to be, going to be clean. The motions you would file, though, I guess, with the exception of supremacy clause issues, wouldn't they substantively be very similar to what you'd need to file in this case? Uh, yes, they would. 
You'd be maybe making any of these same First Amendment issues? Well, we've actually adopted okay. uh, some of the motions. We're not asking you to to hold up as it relates to the motions that uh, they have filed, but we we do believe we've, we're going to have some unique issues to to raise with the court. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Durham. Yeah. Let me uh, let me hear from uh, Mr. Clark's counsel, and then I'll respond here. Thank you very much, Your Honor. It's Harry McDougall for Mr. Clark. And there is, um, <clears throat> our situation has changed a little bit from when we filed our motion just this week. And I would like to, if counsel will permit, we'd like to approach so that I can present that uh, to the court. It's uh, not for public consumption. Uh, just take a second and then okay. we can come back, okay? All right. All right, let's go back on the record, Mr. McDougall. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> so when we filed our motion for an extension, uh, we filed it the day after we had gotten a scheduling order in Mr. Clark's bar case in D.C. And um, we, have, we are litigating in four forums. Uh, this court, the 11th Circuit, uh, the D.C. Bar uh, Evidentiary Forum, and the D.C. Circuit. And they, uh, I detest whining uh, by lawyers, but there is only so much that our team can get done. It's the wrong profession then. Yes, yes. Um, but so we were asking for time to get it past the bar hearing uh, for the discovery deadline and the uh, motions deadline. <clears throat> and as we have just informed the court at the bench, we have a change of circumstances in the bar case, which we think will change that schedule, the exact change has not yet been determined. Now, as we, the schedule ordered on November 7th is still in place, but we expect at least some of that to change. That uh, means that I don't think we need quite as much time as we asked for in our original motion. Uh, but, you know, in the when it rains, it pours uh, another unrelated case. I have a brief due in the Court of Appeals on January 8th. So uh, it just never ends. Um, so what we I, on the discovery deadline, uh, I believe the court indicated at an earlier hearing that it, it was less inclined to grant extension on the discovery than the motions deadline. And so uh, what I would propose uh, is that we be given one week on the discovery deadline. Uh, I think we can live with that. Um, and then on the motions deadline, we would like to get that into uh, February if we can. Is there a particular date in February you're proposing? Um, I don't have my calendar in front of me, but I think the middle of February would work, I think. Okay, let me turn it over to the state. And I think this, what I think becomes relevant in this discussion is the state's recently filed motion asking to specially set the case. And um, so I, I don't know, this, this would be going to Mr. Wade, perhaps. Uh, but it, essentially, it seemed like the state's position or recognition would be that the earliest this case could possibly be scheduled uh, would be a, a targeted date of August. Uh, in light of that, does the, uh, what's the state's position on these two motions from Mr. Meadows and Mr. Clark? So respectfully, Judge, the state stands by its initial filing of that uh, proposed scheduling um, of the case. Um, the problem with what counts. You mean the, the March trial date? The March trial date. 
Okay. Um, the, the problem with what uh, council is proposing is that we're so, he's asking us to somewhat depend upon what is going to happen in this administrative process that we don't believe has anything to do with what we're doing here. Um, in terms of the discovery, we don't understand or know what's going to be turned over, the amount or how voluminous the discovery is, um, which would then affect what we would have to file um, to respond to it or any motions that we need to file to um, get around some of the discovery uh, uh, hurdles that are placed based upon what they turn over. So um, we're not going to consent um, well, let me work through that first aspect, though. I know the state had asked, I think it was the day after the indictment was returned for a March trial day. And some other things have happened since then. And I think the state said in its most recent filing and recognized that they don't want anyone severed. And yet we have the lead defendant scheduled to be in another trial at that exact same time. So how could we still stick to a March time frame? So we believe that the, I mean, uh, council just reminded me just that the most recent filing or the most recent ask was for the August date, right? Not the May date. Well, no, well I think. When you said we stand by our original filing, I thought you were referencing your March date. No, no you're saying sir. the August date. The August date. Okay, so back to square one. If the state's now saying August is the earliest we can try this case, uh, council are asking to extend a motions deadline until at least Mr. Clark is until February. I think Mr. Meadows is until April, uh, March first. Excuse me. We'll take March first. <laughs> um, does that impact the analysis on your end? Somewhat, um, only because of the potential volume of what might be turned over to us. What well, volume of discovery, volume of motions. I don't think they're asking to reset the volume of this, the discovery. Well, I know they are, but one of them is asking for one week on discovery. It's more just when are these motions going to come in? Uh, so maybe that's something if you need, if we need to take a minute to discuss, we can. Um, But at the outset, as I noted, and I think Mr. McDougall recognized, I saw kind of a distinction between turning over the initial batch of reciprocal discovery. Uh, I didn't see that as such. First of all, that's less of a hard cutoff date as our motions generally. You know, reciprocal discovery can be something that's a recurring and rolling basis as soon as something becomes <clears throat> relevant and recognized in that way. Um, but as I mentioned before, and I, I think this would still apply with equal force here that we can keep that on this side of the new year. It's, it's more the motion state, I think, that they're asking for more, for more time on. I think Mr. Clark's has cases given us more substantive issues. Mr. Meadows, um, as argued by Mr. Durham, is more, seems more just personal preference. So I'm not as wild about that ask, but I'm wondering if it's even worth having this discussion if we're not even gonna be getting into a certified ready posture until the summer. I understand. So if you want to confer, feel free, but we'll, we'll just hold in place for a minute. 
well, Mr. Wade, before you step out, uh, let me say one more thing is I'm also going to be mindful that this doesn't open the floodgates to every other co-defendant. I think if anyone's going to ask for a motions extension, it's going to have to be particular. It's going to have to be uh, particularized and, and, and not just, well, you gave one to the other folks because mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot of motions to get through. And I'll, I would plan to be using the time come January uh, to start wading into those just like we're doing today. All right. <laughs> All right, let's go back on the record then if we have everybody. Uh, Mr. Wade. So, so Judge, our obvious, obvious goal um, is and has been to stick to our August trial date. Um, and in efforts uh, to, to stick to that August trial date, Judge, we don't see um, an avenue where the court could push past uh, a February, maybe a February 1st motions deadline. If that happens, then depending upon how the court rules, then I think we're still safe. But also the, the issue of Mr. Meadows and Mr. Clark's um, um, actions that are pending in the 11th Circuit will start to develop a pattern depending upon what happens in those cases as well. And we just wanna be able to move our, our business here. All right, uh, and on, uh... I think it's worth taking up at some, since it plays into this as well, uh, state's motion for the specially set. Um, just at the outset, I'll say I'm not planning on making any final decisions on that today because I think all parties should have the right to weigh in and be heard on it. I think, uh, correct me if there aren't any more recent filings, but the state filed a motion. We have a response in opposition for Mr. Sadow and then just another response from counsel for Mr. Eastman. I'm not aware of any other filed responses yet. Um, I'll say just again, touching on it, just since we're all here together, Mr. Wade, uh, one aspect of that was talking about a final plea date. I, I don't know if we necessarily need that in a case like this, the state's more than welcome and it has its own prerogative to set its own deadline for negotiated pleas, but making everyone come in just to announce ready. I don't know if I see the utility in that. Um, but when it comes to the uh, August trial date, uh, I don't know if that would be, that wouldn't be unrealistic in a, a normal multi-defendant case, even with a lot of pretrial litigation, that wouldn't be unrealistic. But obviously there are a lot of unique variables at play here. And so I don't know if that's gonna be something that we can determine six months in advance. But I guess my question for you on that subject would be how long does it take, how would it estimate, would your estimate be for the state to ramp up, to have its subpoenas out, how much of a runway would you need? And this, I'm not holding you to it. This is more of a ballpark figure. I know you kind of got a trial run in October, <laughs> but maybe that wasn't the ideal uh, race for you. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, I would say a reasonable time frame would be 30 days. Okay. And again, not holding you to that, but generally speaking, you're saying that if at any point no earlier than a month in advance, the state would be showing up ready to go for voir dire. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. And then just because we're on the subject, but without making any determinations today, and because Mr. Sadow's here, I wonder, Mr. Sadow, would you like to weigh in and talk about some of the thought process behind the opposition? Well, the opposition at this point is fairly simple. Um, my client has a trial date in DC in March. He has a trial date in Florida, Southern District of Florida in May. The New York case, which 
kind of was the first one brought, if I remember correctly, um, is awaiting a new date, um, but is I think going to follow the case in Florida. And depending on the length of cases, I don't see how any way this court could be set for trial in August. Um, and of course, while the state doesn't give it any consideration whatsoever, uh, it's very possible that time that my client will be running for um, election for president of the United States for the Republican Party. And that's somewhat prescient, one might think. Uh, and I know that the preference would be that he would not be on trial during the time he was campaigning. I think we'll better leave that to see what happens in the other two cases. Uh, and we'll go more into detail on that as we get closer in time. And of course, we have matters that could potentially be considered by the Your Honor that might go up on certificate of immediate review, again, court's discretion, which could postpone things. So, Right, and obviously recognizing as a caveat that this is assuming the indictment goes forward and uh, based on the arguments of, of counsel. But I, I want to make sure I'm, um, I'm I'm quite clear on the um, on the position. So, the the first level would be we don't think a August or later time frame is going to work because just a conflict. There's going to be another trial going on at the same time. Right. All right. And as a backup, if uh, your client is the uh, is the nominee, um, put the case that if he is not, is that no longer at issue? If he was not on trial and he was not the nominee, there would be would there be any hesitation? By some strange um, occurrence, he is not the nominee. Although, of course, everyone recognizes he's far ahead in the polls to be the Republican nominee for president. But assuming, um, and I think that's a very low assumption that he is not, then I think it changes perspective across the board. And so your request at this point would be that that is uh, something that we should at least defer before wading into for a few months. I believe that that's an accurate uh, assessment of our position. I, I would point out, I realize the state believes it has an interest here. And obviously we believe that First Amendment rights and other rights, we haven't even brought the presidential um, immunity motion, which is gonna be brought before January the 8th, which I'm suggesting at the very least, depending on the court's ruling, would go up from one side or the other, should the certificate of immediate review be issued by your honor and if the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Georgia take it up. But can you imagine the notion of the Republican nominee for president not being able to campaign for the presidency because he is in some form or fashion in a courtroom defending himself? I mean, with all due respect to everybody, and I know what the court is attempting to do is to give justice and due process, and I've said that, I'll continue to say that. That would be the most effective election interference for in the United States. And I don't think anybody wants to be in that position. I would hope the state would understand that if the Republicans believe he should be the nominee, that he should be given the same fair chance to campaign national politics as Democratic nominee, which of course at this point appears to be so I, I, I hear what the court is saying. And so the bottom line right now is I don't think we should set a trial date and see how things materialize and kind of take it uh, step by step. And to further clarify, would it also be your client's position that he would like to be present for every day of, of a trial that occurs? 
that would be presumptive, I think, on my point to say there are certainly you would want to be present for matters involving jury selection um, and then into the trial itself, because we talk here about jury selection, that's going to take a number of weeks or potential months. But I, I can't speak for President Trump on that at this moment. I, I need to have more interaction with him um, and his campaign team and a lot of other people that come into play in making such a decision. Okay. Mr. Wade, anything you want to weigh in on in reaction? And also, I don't want to leave other uh, co-counsel out of this if they have something they want to add. Yes, sir. Just respectfully. Uh, Actually, let me do that first. Let me, so you're only, you get to respond to everything in bulk. Was there anything in the else uh, that co-counsel wanted to add in on this than the ones that are here today? Well, the only thing I wonder is if at some point you're going to talk about severance and that, that could change the dynamic as well. Regardless of the state saying they don't want anybody severed. You have indicated in the past that you thought it would, there would be a severance and that could affect who goes to trial when. Yeah, no, there are a lot of moving parts and I don't mind kind of saying where I am initially and soliciting input, uh, but I'd, I'd cut Mr. Wade off. So Mr. Wade, anything in reaction that you wanted to add? Yes, sir, just, just respectfully, the district attorney has made it clear that she has no interest in uh, interfering or getting involved with uh, this presidential election. Um, her sole focus is to move this case forward and not with respect to anything that's going on outside of Fulton County, Georgia. Now, having said that, let me say this. Has the court uh, uh, closed the door on um, possibly entertaining an order that would contemplate um, uh, both uh, circumstances in case the case does not move the other case that uh, the court is believing is going to go forward that would impede our ability to move forward with an August trial date? What if that doesn't happen? Um, so could the court fashion an order saying that if it doesn't happen, then August it is. Um, well, how do we, I'm wondering how we can square that. So you're saying that uh, the state's position is that this case should not be interfering with an election. Uh, Mr. Sadow's position is that by going forward, starting in August, it would last an estimate initially was five months. That was just with two co-defendants. That takes you through 2025. I think it was, it was right. four months. Right. Well, I'm, I'm adding in our, our buffer and, and the defense case, I would presume they might want to present some evidence, right? <laughs> um, do, what's the, what would be the state's response that having this trial on election day is election interference? This trial does not constitute election interference. Let's be clear. Our, this is not election interference. This is moving forward with the, the, the business of Fulton County. Um, I don't think that it in any way impedes uh, defendant Trump's ability to, to campaign or do whatever he needs to do in order to seek office. Okay, so, yes, sir. Um, Portal on behalf of John Eastman. Okay, there we go. Uh, this gets to back to what uh, Don Samuel's point was. Dr. Eastman does not, if the cases were to be continued into 2025 without, uh, that would be an entire year that Dr. Eastman wouldn't have his case addressed. And that was the opposition, that was at the heart of our opposition to 
that we filed to the proposed August trial date. Uh, there are a number of defendants, as noted, who were not running for presidency of the United States. So uh, this gets to the issue of severance. And I realize that there are no real right severance motions yet. But that's the point about the opposition to the August trial date, which was apparently triggered by the, as we said, arbitrary, capricious, final negotiated plea date. Well, so as I take it, it wasn't so much your opposition to the, the date as it's, you would, you would be fine with an August date as long as you're, you would be severed. As long as we're knowing we're on trial. Right. right. And we would like possibly it being earlier if we, if we could be accommodated, but I, I realize there are other co-defendants who have other issues that have been raised to the court. Okay. It is what it is. Uh, well, I'll, I'll touch on severance here in just a second, but I want to, I'll put one more question out to the floor. This isn't one that has to be answered now, but I think it's one might, that might be worth considering. And so I'd pose the question to Mr. Sadow, uh, if your client does uh, win election in 2024, uh, could he even be tried in 2025? The answer to that is, I believe that under the supremacy clause and his duties as president of the United States, that this trial would not take place at all until after he left his term of office. So it is against him. It's only against him. All right. And um, Mr. Wade, again, I, I'll give you the opportunity to respond if you, if you so desire. All right. I think obviously that's something we're going to be taking up in greater detail and the new year. And uh, when it comes to the issue of severance, without foreclosing any of the substantive arguments for severance that I'm sure will be filed and, and need to be made and considered, uh, I think, as Mr. Samuel points out, the logistical concerns are still there. Uh, certainly, the, uh, I don't, I think most, at least I know the state, I know in, in terms of a preference for conserving uh, just court time and judicial resources, the, the goal would be to try the case uh, once, again, solely from a logistical standpoint. But I think a lot of the arguments and things that I put in that order would still hold true even with 15 defendants. Um, and so, again, just putting out initial um, reactions is that even if there is a, as we get closer to the time of trial, a severance due to logistical issues, it's my understanding uh, under the joinder statute that the state would have the ability and says shall be able to choose the order. And so if we set a limit, we, that we just feel, court feels eight's the, the, the most we can do at once. Uh, my initial thought was that there would be, state would be able to choose an A league and a B league. And as if cases resolve on the EVA trial, the folks on the B list better be ready to sub in. Uh, but that I'm not, I don't think I can, um, I'm willing to say definitively that all 15, if that's what, if that's who are left come the trial date, um, that no ifs, ands, or buts, they're all joined together. That's where I am now. Uh, but I, like I said, this is more just to solicit input and reactions. So, Mr. Wade. So we, we do know, Judge, by just historically, uh, 12 defendants have been successfully tried. Uh, so would the court be inclined to consider? I don't want to set a number today. I think, again, we're still a little too far out to do that. 
but I think we can recognize 12 is not 15 and 12 is very much pushing those boundaries. Um, but as I mentioned, I think the state would have the statutory right to choose who that who would fill those chairs. And in the interests of efficiency, if one of those chairs is emptied the morning of voir dire, someone else would be filling in. So eight is not a hard and fast. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, no, not at all. I'm not, I'm, I'm not getting to any number at this point. But that's just how I was at this point viewing logistical severance. I don't know, Mr. Samuel, just because you raised the point, was there anything you wanted to add? Oh, I, you know, I think the lawyers have all been discussing severance and I think you described it once as which bucket are we all going to be in? And we've had a lot of conversations about it. I don't think we've formulated a, a specific response, but if you gave us a deadline to make a proposal, I bet we could meet your deadline. Sure. All right. Thank you all. Maybe two different deadlines, one for one bucket and one for the other. Okay. In the, in the near term though, uh, uh, we have Mr. Clark and Mr. Meadows who have been uh, waiting here. Uh, this, I, we've covered a lot of ground since then. I think the state's position was that it was consenting to a February date. Not past February 1st. Okay. All right. So if the state's consenting, then again, I'm, I was more on the fence with Mr. Meadows, but uh, to that extent, I'll, um, we can say that the motions deadline would extend to February 1st. And uh, we can do that. This, uh, I think the same with Mr. Clark. Again, we're in another situation where there's a lot going on and, and a lot changes week by week. So uh, with the state's consent, we'll extend the motions deadline solely for Mr. Clark and Mr. Meadows to February 1st. Your Honor, on that, assuming that uh, either one of those defendants were to come up with a unique motion, which had not been raised by any other of the defendants, would we at least be in a position to adopt for purposes of the record? Uh, I'll consider a motion requesting to adopt. Let's let's go that way. I don't think all motions are created equal, and uh, we'll. Um, I, I do want to have that January date be a hard and fast. Uh, because so far, you know, I think we've had some, a lot of hands at the table and the issues are, are starting to appear similar in most respects. And I'd like to see what we come up with in January. I'll so maybe. <laughs> we'll go with a maybe. Um, I'll say a maybe, but unlikely. I'll, I'll put it that way, uh, Mr. Sadow. We, it may be minus because with the pretrial litigation that's expected, we have to have a, st a stop date uh, or at least a start date. Okay. Uh, so I think Mr. McNoodle, that handles your business today. All right. Feel free. Okay. If we're still standing here. Uh, all right. Uh, anything else then from Mr. Durham? You're also, okay. All right, so if there's nothing else from the state, then we're moving on. Uh, the remaining issues, and that may have taken care of, no, I don't think it did actually, the housekeeping and discovery issues, but uh, I wonder if we can combine or if council were planning to combine issues three through seven as uh, articulated by the proposed agenda. No, not so much. Well, there are a lot of similar issues. I'm sure. doing item number three, which is the solicitation counts. Okay, well, let's just start there then. How much time do you need? Uh, you know, at most, I would guess 20 minutes. All right. Um, and, and I do want to begin, if I can, by making sure the court is aware of how we structure the agenda. It is not defended by a defendant. 
nor is it even count by count. It's really topic by topic. And there's a lot of adoptions, but it should be clear that like with regard to uh, Ray Smith's demurs, we, we demurred to, I don't know how many counts altogether, probably just about everybody, everything he was charged with. And he's been charged with the third most counts, but we're not arguing all those today. In fact, uh, Mr. Anulowicz will be arguing the false statement counts to the legislature, um, even though we're in the exact same counts and even some additional ones. So I, I, I'm doing anything that involves the solicitation <clears throat> at the legislature. Mr. Nulowitz is doing anything that involves false statements at the legislature. Um, we are also uh, in a couple counts in different ways dealing with the uh, alternate electors, contingent electors or the electors. <laughs> Um, and we adopt and we'll do it in writing also, you know, all the arguments you heard this morning there, but otherwise you were going to hear from every one of us on every topic, which we've done everything we could to be more efficient. So the counts, uh, if that's okay with the court. So the counts that I'm going to be focusing on in particular counts two, six, and 23. Those are the three substantive counts alleging uh, solicitation to violate a legislator's plural, legislators, uh, oath of office. Uh, and they are, in all relevant respects, uh, identical. Uh, they differ in dates and they differ which legislative body um, Mr. Smith appeared before. And in each of them, there are a number of defendants. Uh, and I think we're all adopting each other, but I'm, I am handling uh, these three counts, two, six, and 23. Count two uh, alleges an appearance before the legislature on December 3rd. All, all these dates are 2020, of course. Count six alleges an appearance before the legislature on December 10th. Uh, and count 23 involves an appearance before the legislature on December 30th. These are not the, the fourth time that he appears at the Capitol is with the electors on December 14th. That was argued by uh, Mr. Gillen. Uh, Ms. Pearson, and we adopt their arguments with regard to that, the allegations involving what happened on December 14th uh, and the related time frame. So I'm focusing on the solicitation counts. And the solicitation counts um, are, are virtually all identical, uh, again, other than the dates. Let, let me just summarize really briefly uh, count two as an example. Um, and, and this applies to a large extent on the overt acts and the RICO, but we're not asking you to grant a demur with regard to them because they're not, most of these are not alleged to be crimes at all, even in the, even in the, uh, as predicate acts. So that's really the substantive counts, two, six, and 23, to the extent that any of them are mirrored in a RICO count. Um, actually, my partner will be arguing the RICO objection, hopefully before nightfall. And she will, you know, the, the reason we put that at the end, just so you know, is because Otherwise, she'd be dealing with every single substantive count also. So, um, so count two. Count two alleges, uh, as I said, that on the December 3rd, 2020, uh, Mr. S Mr. Smith, along with Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, Ms. Ellis, uh, appeared before the legislature and unlawfully solicited uh, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who were identified, many of whom were identified in the indictment itself, to engage in conduct constituting the felony offense of violating the oath of office. You have a solicitation allegation asking someone uh, to engage in conduct which would amount to a crime, and the crime is violating your oath. 
the oath you took uh, before you became uh, either a Senate or a member of the House, depending on which count we're looking at, all virtually the same. Uh, and then it identifies what you asked the legislators to do, which they claim would violate their oath. All the same, all three counts. They were asked to unlawfully appoint presidential electors from the state of Georgia. Okay, I'm just going to address those allegations because, as I've now said three times, they apply to all three counts of the indictment. We are challenging these indictments both under um, as both under the special demur and a general demur. Uh, and I'm, you know, for those of us who spend a lot of time in federal court, um, and as you did for, for many years, um, they are not unlike, um, in terms of what you're seeking, uh, a bill of particulars, a special demur is un not unlike a bill of particulars that you would use in federal court. And in old civil practice, before the Civil Practice Act, it's not unlike, you know, a motion for a more definite statement or something else that challenges, I'm talking about special demurs now. Uh, it challenges the uh, amount of information that was given to you in the, in the charging document, uh, whether you, you know, it even applies in civil cases. And you know, as you know from both parties' submissions, I'm just getting my computer warmed up. The, you, know, you don't need to read a whole lot of case law to understand special demurs, you really only need to read two cases. And I think they're the cases that the prosecution cites and the defense. One is uh, the case of uh, State v. Sanders, um, which the state cites, oddly enough, because it's so favorable to the defense. Uh, and the other is the Kimbrough case, uh, which was a fairly remarkable case, finding a special demur should have been given, uh, should have been granted, leading to the dismissal of the indictment. Uh, in a RICO case. I don't know who argued that case in the Supreme Court, but whoever did was, was surely brilliant. Um, do you happen to know who argued that, Jack? Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. So um, he, here's the problem with the indictment. And, and I, with all due respect to my colleagues, I'm not sure I understand really what their response is other than we've alleged the three elements of the crime, that's all we have to do. We, had, we allege that you solicited, we told, we told you who you solicited then, when, and what you asked them to do, period, end of discussion. We don't have to do anything more. And in fact, they didn't do anything more because at a minimum, what we seek in our special demur is, would you mind telling us what oath it is that you claim that we took? What was the oath we took? I've done many oath of office cases. You represent, we've represented county commissioners when they do something inappropriate, they engage in some kind of, you know, shenanigans and they've taken some money they shouldn't take. And you always find out what the oath was that they took. More often, we represent police officers who were alleged to have committed uh, a violation of their oath of office because they did something wrong. Um, usually, you know, an excessive force case or maybe sexual impropriety with an arrestee um, and, or, or, or a financial crime. But you're always told what the oath was because that in essence defines what you did what you did that was illegal. You violated the oath, which required that you X, Y, Z. Um, and so we filed a special demur in this case to find out what oath it is that you say we took. You think it would be simple. Why don't you just go look it up yourself? Well, the answer is many public officials take different oaths. 
policemen, for example, they take an oath under the county, they take an oath by the state. There's four or five different oaths they have to take. The city, the county, the, the state, and you know, the oath, you know, the post certification oath. Uh, and you're always told what is the oath that you violated. I looked in the code, I started at OCGA 1-1-1 to make sure I didn't miss a certain oath that perhaps a legislator took. This is the first time I've ever had an oath of office case, ever. I've been practicing 40 years in which the oath wasn't attached to the indictment or the date that they took it, or at least the content of it is spelled out in the, in the indictment itself. And I found that there was only one oath <clears throat> that legislators take. And if I'm wrong, it shows even more why we're entitled to a special demurrer. I'm assuming that the, that, the, that the prosecution doesn't disagree that this is the oath that was taken, but I'm just guessing that this is the oath they're referring to because I don't know of any other oath they took. We should have been told, but I found an oath in the code at Title 28, never looked at that before, Title 28-1-4. And it says, it begins, in addition to any other oath you took, I have no idea if they took another oath because they didn't tell us. In addition to any other oath prescribed by law, each senator and representative before taking the seat to which elected shall take the following oath. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support the constitution of the state and of the United States. That's it. Then there's a reference to, um, I'll conduct myself you know, in, in, in accordance with that oath. So I attached for your benefit a, a copy of a decision from a judge down in, in the uh, Brunswick Judicial Circuit, which was the last oath of office case I took. And there they alleged you violated your oath. They gave us the oath in that case, at least. And in that case, the oath said, I like this, I swear I will defend the Constitution. And the judge said, that's too broad. You haven't given Mr. Samuel, Ms. Clark Palmer was in that case too. You haven't given them enough information. What clause in the constitution, what part of the oath did you supposedly violate? And I, I, I pose the same question here. Assuming this is the only oath, and if it's not, you ought to automatically give a special demur since they didn't even tell us what oath it was. What portion of the United States constitution or the Georgia constitution because that's in the oath also, Georgia and Union Wisconsin. What, what clause in the Constitution are you claiming we asked the legislators to violate? Was it the Equal Protection Clause? Because voters in different counties, you know, Fulton County was rife with fraud. Did, did, did they get more than one man, one vote, or one person, one vote in Fulton County? Because I've seen election challenges in this election dealing with equal protection. Was it due process? Was it what I learned about this morning, Article 2, Section 1? Is that the violation of the Constitution that is allegedly, was allegedly solicited um, of the legislators? Uh, we have no idea. We don't know what we are going to be defending against. We don't know what it is, what portion of the oath we supposedly violated by asking legislators to, I call them, coronate the electors, which is all they're alleged to have done, appeared before the legislature and said, please, you know, select these alternate electors. Once we are told what the oath was, which we haven't been, once we are told, assuming it's the constitution that we were um, 
um, soliciting people to violate. What, what is it about the Constitution says you can't ask a legislator to appoint a to appoint a, an elector? There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't do that. There's nothing in the Constitution that says a, a legislator can't do something like that. How does that violate the Constitution? The prosecution is saying it's a crime. We're saying it's constitutionally mandated that we have the right to do that. That's what, what, Ms., what Ms. Pearson and Mr. Gillen said this morning. But now the state's going to have to say it would violate the Constitution somewhere, somehow, Georgia Constitution, federal Constitution, we have no idea, to even ask the legislature to appoint alternate electors. It's the same in count two, it's the same in count six, same in count 23, exact same conduct each time. The prosecution responds, well, we've set forth the law and the elements of the offense, but that's not what a special demur requires. And again, I'll, I'll quote from the Kimbrough decision. The indictment must allege the underlying facts, kind of gets into the, the as applied issues you were dealing with before, but now we're in the context of a demur where Kimbrough said, you must allege the facts which actually constitute the offense so that we are prepared. That's why we've asked, tell us the oath, show us the oath, you know, put it in the discovery, which would not be a, a adequate substitute, but they haven't even done that. They say in their response, it's no more necessary for us to tell you how you violated the constitution than in a murder for hire case to say, you know, whether we want you to use poison, a gun or a knife. And that's a clever, a clever response, but totally inapt. It would be as if, you know, we said, go kill somebody. Would that be enough? You know, a solicitation, go kill somebody somewhere, somehow. That, that's the amount of information we've gotten in this case, as far as the solicitation case goes. This isn't a conspiracy count. These are all, you solicited to, to these legislators to violate their oath in order to, um, so, so that they would violate their oath, apparently their constitutional obligation. They say we can look elsewhere in the indictment, but that's not the answer. A special demur has to be satisfied if the count doesn't allege sufficient facts to allow for the preparation, if the count doesn't allege the sufficient act, discovery is not a cure, oral argument here is not a cure. If Mr. Wooten stands up and says, I'll answer all his questions today, that would be a concession that the indictment is not enough. When he responds to this, he should stand up and say, I'm not gonna tell you anything more, I don't have to. Because once he starts answering questions and saying, okay, I'll tell you where the oath is. I'll tell you what part of the oath was violated. I'll tell you the constitutional provision that was you solicited the, the legislators to violate, he's acknowledging, he's conceding that the indictment was not sufficient and he had to fill in the gaps uh, by standing in court and telling, is he gonna promise, you know, is he gonna promise those are gonna be the allegations in the indictment? Well, we, I know you made this reference earlier. I know the bill of particulars isn't recognized, I think explicitly in Georgia law. Right. But that's essentially what, what you want. 
Well, <laughs> you want a perfect, you want a diamond perfect in form and substance. That's my next line. Thank you. There you have it. You, 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 <laughs> but you've, you've, you've jumped the gun on that. But the difference between a bill of particulars and a special demur is the relief that has to be granted. Spe- bill of particulars in federal courts are very, can I say, gentlemanly thing to do. And the judge says, just answer his question. You're bound by it. And you're bound by it. Yeah. That's not the way it works here. You have to dismiss the count here. It's the only way to resolve a special demur. If you agree that the indictment is defective in terms of not providing sufficient information, you must dismiss that count. That count gets dismissed and they can reindict, they can do whatever they want to do, but discovery is not the answer. An informal response in court is not, or even a formal response, even if he takes an oath and tells us what the answer to my questions are. And, and none the, of that is sufficient. It's uh, a dismissal. Agreement between the parties, and that's not an answer either. Well, we, or one that's not at. We're, we're not going to agree that we don't get a special demur. Special demur says you must have a, an indictment that is perfect in form and substance. I love Mr. Anulowitz and, and his colleagues' description of an indictment. You know, according to Kimbrough, according to cases that go back 30 years, they have to get an A. It has to be perfect in form and substance. It can't be an okay or an adequate or even a B plus indictment. It has to be an A. You know, if we were, if you if we were grading on a curve here, this indictment, you know, perhaps, you know, this indictment deserves a B, but only because so much of the remaining parts are so pitiful. So our special demur is we want to know what was the oath? Um, what part of the Constitution, if if the if the oath is the Constitution um, to, to obey the Constitution, what clause in the Constitution? Were they solicited to violate? Uh, and why would that be a crime? Um, let me turn to the um, <clears throat> general demur, which, um, well, I, I have one more example here. This, is, this, this indictment would be as if you were charged with violating your oath of office, or I asked you to violate your oath of office because you came into court, you know, without a robe this morning, or some judge came into court without a robe. Isn't it clearly the law that the judge would be entitled to say, what oath did I ever took that required me to um, wear an oath? I wanna know the oath that you claim I violated. And they're saying, we don't even have to tell you that. You can just, you'll find out at trial. That's when you're going to find out the oath you violated uh, and, the, and the portion of the oath that was violated. Let me turn to the general demur aspects um, of this claim. Again, the, the, the allegation is that Mr. Smith and others, Mr. Giuliani, um, Mr. Eastman, I guess, and, and Ms. Ellis, went to the legislature. They're invited to go to the legislature to answer questions of the legislators. And they are, and when they go there, they urge the legislators, this is what's in the indictment, this is, you know, forget the facts outside the four corners. And while there, they make statements that are asking the legislators to appoint the slate of alternate electors. And apparently the allegation is that that violates the constitution. They're asking the legislators to do something that is unconstitutional. 
assuming those facts are all true, as a general demur must do. That is no different than a lobbyist who goes to the legislature, examples from my brief, and says, you should pass a law that says any book that has the word sex in it should not be allowed in the public library. If someone went to the legislature, a lobbyist went to the legislature and said that, I want you to pass a law that says you can't bring a book that has the word sex in it to a library, clearly a First Amendment violation, right? Nobody would doubt that. But under their theory, you're violating your oath. You're, you're soliciting a violation of the legislator's oath because the lobbyist asked the legislator to do that, to do something that would violate his oath because he violated the, he passed the law that violated the Constitution. Think of the, the pre-Dobbs decision, the abortion cases, where the- So this, just to be clear, this line of, of your argument is premised solely on if the oath that they're referring to is Constitution. If, if, listen, if I'm wrong about that, I'll sit down. If they stand up and say, you found the wrong oath, you just grant the special demur and we'll start over again. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the, we, we laugh, but that's the whole point of, this, of the special demurs is make sure I got the right oath, okay? If there's some other oath that the legislators took, I mean, usually they're in writing and they're attached to the indictment. Do they have the written oath, the signed document? The, the problem with this, from a general demur standpoint, is even if they did that, even if I'm right that the, that the oath of office they violated was the oath to obey the Constitution, it's not a crime. We can admit every fact other than the, obviously the allegation that it's unlawful. You don't have to ever concede that fact for a general demur. And it would violate the First Amendment to say you can't go to the legislature and ask them to pass a law saying all abortions should be illegal, pre-Dobbs, right? Because that was unconstitutional at the time. Roe v. Wade said that all abortions can't be illegal. You're not allowed to go to the legislature and ask them to do something like that because you're, you're soliciting them to violate their oath, which is to be constitutional. And the solicitation statute, the Davis case that um, Mr. Sadow raised before, and I think is in the, not, not Hall, but Davis, the other case, what you're asking the legislators to do, it has to pose a clear and present danger. That's the Davis decision, a clear and present danger that they're going to be committing a crime if they did it, if they followed through on the solicitation. That's Davis, 246 Georgia, 761. Not only is there not a clear and present danger, it's not even a crime. It's not even a crime. You, it's, a, it's this compound defense where you're violating the oath of office, which doesn't, doesn't violate anything. There's nothing in their oath that says they can't pass a law that's unconstitutional. They do it all the time. Don't tell, don't tell them I said that, but they do do it all the time. That's why we have challenges to statutes all the time challenging the constitutionality of statutes. Your brethren on the bench in this, in this courthouse have found statutes unconstitutional. Did they throw the legislators in jail? Did they say the legislators violated their oath of office when they passed the law? Of course not. Other aspects of the First Amendment that apply to the general demur here is the, is the lawyer's duty, we talked about that a little bit in our brief, to advocate on behalf of a client, to urge legislators. This is, um, Trespassing a little bit on Mr. Anulowitz's First Amendment argument. Um, so, asking legislators to appoint presidential electors doesn't violate the Constitution. 
doesn't violate the legislator's constitution, even if they were to do it. You couldn't put the legislators in jail for doing it, not for violating the oath of office, not for violating the United States Constitution. We'd ask you to start with the special demur and then move on to the general demur. If their answer is yes, the only violation we're alleging is the violation of the oath to obey the Constitution. And the only violation of the Constitution is exactly what um, is described in the indictment, requesting that they appoint alternate electors, um, then we believe we are entitled to a, a demur. The only other thing I'd mentioned, I mentioned the Sanders case uh, and the Kimbrough case. In Sanders, the, the allegation in the indictment was you solicited someone to either possess with intent to distribute or to distribute a controlled substance. It's clearly a crime, clearly alleges a crime under, uh, under the Georgia Code. And Je Justice Bethel said, that's not enough. You have to say which drug, okay? You have to say which drug it was that the defendant was solicited to possess. It's not enough just to set forth the elements of the crime. You have to give more information. Uh, and that's the, that's the Sanders case. And it's even in the state's brief. They cite even that portion of the Sanders case. That it's um, you, you just reciting elements of the offense doesn't put us on sufficient notice of what the crime is. Thank you, Mr. Samuel. Thank you. All right. Yeah, just following on Mr. Samuel's one argument. One second, sir. We got to get our court reporter back up online. Following on Mr. Samuel's argument, I want to talk specifically about additional issue that applies specifically to count 23. Um, in that count, they're charged, Mr. Cheely, Mr. Giuliani, and Mr. Smith are charged with solicitation of the violation of oath on December 30th in that they allegedly solicited the Georgia State Senators to violate their oath by appointing uh, the alternate slate of electors. Your Honor, this is subject to General Demure because it's a temporal impossibility. Looking at the indictment, as detailed in Overt Act 78 through 85, the contingent alternate slate of electors was done, was completed, and the associated paperwork had been transmitted on December 14, 2020. And incidentally, none of those Overt Acts involve or name Mr. Cheely. As the actions have been completed well before December 30th, as is described in the indictment, there is no possibility, even admitting every fact in count 23, that any of those defendants could have solicited them to violate their oath because what they were supposedly being solicited to do had already been done and had already been complete. Thank you. And Your Honor, I have one point to address. <coughs> Your Honor, I address the uh, matter that was raised by the state's motion to restrict, which the court has already commented on. I just wanted to point out that in the motion to adopt, the first one that I did, which was filed on September 11th of 2023 as to Mr. Smith, and also I did an amended motion to just be as clear as I could be on October 24th, 2023, I indicated in a footnote on page one that Mr. Smith, that is the defendant that uh, Mr. Samuel represents, that his demurs to count six applies to counts five, 28, and 38. 
which charge President Trump with the same offense. There, all three of the offenses uh, involve solicitation. The oath issue is the same. The First Amendment issue on Davis is the same. We don't have the legislature issue. So those have already been brought to the court's attention through my adoption motion. It's nothing that was new to the state. It's right there in the footnote on both of the documents that I filed. Okay, thank you, thank you sir. Uh, Mr. Wooten, I presume. All right. I'm gonna go a little bit out of order, starting with the argument related to temporal impossibility. That is a pure speaking demur that's going to facts outside what's alleged in the indictment. It's void, the court should disregard that argument altogether. Um, moving on to Mr. Samuel's argument. He makes great arguments if his client were charged with violation of oath of office and his client is not charged with violation of oath of office. He's charged with solicitation of violation of oath of office, which is an entirely different crime with entirely different elements. Our inchoate offenses, solicitation, attempt, conspiracy, do not have the same elements as the target offenses, um, any, any target offense. You can use any, any other offense as a target offense for one of those inchoates. They don't have the same elements. They have different elements. And so the pleading requirements are different. And each of these counts survives general demur. They all allege the essential elements um, and they all apprise the defendant of what he or she must be prepared to meet. And they provide enough detail to protect against double jeopardy. Again, indictment is not required in this case because of solicitation to allege the oath of office or the portion of the oath violated. So let's look at the elements of criminal solicitation. With intent that another person engage in conduct constituting a felony, a person solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or otherwise attempts to cause the other person to engage in such conduct. Those are the elements. That's it. Sure. But maybe let's, let me try, try this argument out on maybe a account that is litigated a little bit more frequently and um, solicitation you have to, is an umbrella that encompasses some other felony because something has to be solicited. So I'm, I'm just thinking off the cuff here, felony murder is an umbrella count that has to have a predicate felony. And when we look at an indictment, usually with a felony murder count, it's going to say aggravated assault. And we can go down the indictment and we'll look at the aggravated assault and there'll be a little bit more detail about that aggravated assault. But we don't have that in this indictment, do we? Where there's a little more detail about that count. I disagree there, Judge. Okay. I disagree. Um, let me see if, let me, let me skip ahead to that portion. Oh. Let me, I'll, let me just talk about it. <laughs> I don't have the case set in front of me. The case law is very clear on this. And the other side, I believe uh, Mr. Nolowitz talked about this in his, re his reply to our response, um, cited a case saying that every count has to allege everything. Well, I, I'll take your point that you can do the entire indictment, right? Right. Okay. Right, right. So we can look at the whole indictment. Right. Where else in the indictment do we break down what part of the oath was violated? He needs to know whether it's the Constitution or whether it's, I don't even know what else is in the oath, but... And judge, that's where not we to be a communist. I think that's usually in there, right? Right. But what part of the oath, you know, where else is that in the indictment? That's where we disagree. That that you know, the portion of the oath does not appear in the indictment. 
but the state's position is that it does not have to appear in the indictment because the portion of the oath is something that has to be pled for a violation of oath of office, not for criminal solicitation. They're completely different pleading requirements. Um, and, I, and I give an illustration to that. It wasn't solicitation of murder. Uh, Mr. Samuel said, we use a, a, an argument, it's not murder because there's essentially one way to commit malice murder. I use aggravated, aggravated assault for a reason because there's at least four distinct ways to violate the aggravated assault statute. And does a person who's um, soliciting someone to commit aggravated assault have to specify? Well, do we have a case law case on that? We don't, we don't. Admittedly, we don't. I think there's one case that deals with a special demur to a criminal solicitation count, and that is Sanders, and it's dealing with the, the controlled substance issue. So then the answer to this could be yes. Our position, and we argue to the court that, it, that it's not. And the reason why is because the person who's doing the solicitation in this situation um, doesn't have to know how the person that they're soliciting is going to commit the crime. And so if they don't have to know how the person is going to commit the crime, then how could the state ever allege how they solicited someone, like what specific provision of aggra the aggravated assault statute they solicited someone to commit if they don't, if they're not required to, to do that in the first place. <laughs> And so the example that we use is, that, you know, if person A goes to person B, says, you know, here's $10,000. I want you to take care of person C, rough them up real good, make sure they're never a problem for me again. That's enough. It doesn't matter if, you know, they, person B shoots person C, commits a drive-by shooting against person C, strangles person C, clubs person C, maces them. None of that matters. Those are all separate and distinct ways of violating the aggravated assault statute. But if person A is not even required to know how the statute would be violated, then how, how would the state be required to allege the manner in which A solicited B to violate the statute? It, it's, it's impossible. So it can't be a requirement that in criminal solicitation, you have to solicit, you have to allege that a solicitation was done in a particular way because the solicitation itself doesn't have to be done in a particular way. And again, the state can't allege what specific provision person A solicited B to violate because person A never specified one. And that's the same way here. None of these defendants said, you know, I want you to violate this portion of your oath. They're not even, I don't know that they're required to even know that the legislators have taken an oath. Um, that's not raised and that's an issue for another day, but none of them say, I want you to do it in this way, or I want you to do it in that way, or I want you to violate the Georgia constitution, or I want you to violate the United States constitution, or I want you to violate this provision. They're not required to solicit in that way. And so the state cannot be required, um, in order to be guilty of the crime. So the state can't be required to plead something that doesn't have to be proven. Um, the, and again, the cases that are relied on by the defendants are inapplicable. Is there a distinction there, though, between what the state has to prove in terms of knowledge and what the state has to prove as of the effect of their actions? If that makes sense. So, um, yes, um, the state doesn't have to prove what aspect of the oath that they were soliciting the violation of. But if the state does have to show the ultimate effect of it or... Uh, you know, that's uh, and judge. I think I to answer your question, um, the state may have to prove knowledge. 
I don't know, but we're not talking about proof because these are motions to dismiss an indictment. We're talking about allegations. And so we point that out in some later arguments and we point that out in our briefs that often in these arguments, we see the defendants conflating you know, sufficiency of the evidence with a pleading requirement and they are not the same thing at all, at all. And so, you know, while we may have to prove at trial X, Y, or Z, we don't have to allege all of those things. And so there's, there's no grounds upon which, in our opinion, um, and again, to my point, cases concerning sufficiency of the evidence, they're irrelevant to a demurrer because that's not dealing with what has to be pled in an indictment. That's dealing with what has to be proven at trial. And they're very, very different things. Um, also, it's irrelevant that it's not a violation of oath of office to enact unconstitutional legislation. The indictment doesn't allege that they asked legislators to enact unconstitutional legislation. Um, it doesn't specify exactly, you know, how they were to unlawfully appoint presidential electors, but that includes getting rid of the, the actual will of the voters in this state throwing those out and figuring out some way to say, nope, these are the electors. The defendants themselves weren't quite sure how they were going to do that. So they didn't, there wasn't a fully developed plan. And I, again, I hesitate to speak to facts outside of the indictment, but I don't find this to be a compelling argument. Again, because it alleges criminal solicitation and is for the jury to determine um, whether or not the proof show, you know, rises to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt of uh, criminal solicitation. Again, there's, I, don't, I don't know that this argument was raised in the oral arguments, but in the briefs, there was an argument that, you know, you can't, it's not a violation of oath of office to do X, Y, Z, or maybe they're immune because of legislative <clears throat> immunity. None of that matters because the solicitation statute itself says it's not a defense to prosecution for criminal solicitation that the person solicited could not be guilty of the crime solicited. Um, again, there, there was raised in the pleadings that, you know, we haven't alleged a nexus between appointing presidential electors and official duties. Well, that nexus appears in the Constitution. But once again, this is this is an issue of proof at trial and not a pleading requirement. Again, Judge, these motions should be denied because this is a criminal solicitation charge. The elements of the offense are different um, than the underlying target crime. We do not have to plead. Um, those that level of specificity. It's not a defense that the legislators couldn't have been guilty. The remaining issues are for the jury. And I do want to point out, Judge, that as it relates to the special demur, what we do, what we do allege, and this is contrasting with Sanders, because in that case, it is a very again, like I said, that's the one case on demurs to solicitation uh, charges. In that case, they didn't really allege anything. In this case, we allege who was solicited where they were solicited, how they were solicited, what they were solicited to do. There's a laundry list, why they did the solicitation. It's not a mystery of what, what these defendants have to be prepared to meet at trial. That's the ultimate question. Do they know what we're talking about? Does the indictment tell them what crime we're talking about? And does it protect them against double jeopardy? And when you read it as a whole, it's very clear. It tells these defendants, what conduct is being charged, it, pre it prevents double jeopardy, and that's sufficient to withstand a special demur.
in the indictment what the oath was. I don't know how Mr. Wooten can seriously say we know what we asked them to do was a crime. If we don't even know what the oath was or whether they even took an oath. The, the, the problem here is it, it, there's a number of ways that I, I think Mr. Wooten mischaracterizes our motion. If I asked someone to, you know, go cross the street or something, and he would he would say, "Well, you asked them to cross the street, and we're we're claiming that that's a violation of the law." You'd have to say, "What law did you violate? What law did you ask him to violate?" And define the elements of that crime. They're just saying, you know, they're not even saying that we asked anybody to violate their oath. It doesn't even say that we said, "I want you to go out and violate your oath." However you feel like doing it, just go violate your oath, Chris, okay? Just go violate your oath. It's, it's a compound crime that requires that we have knowledge and intent that you will violate the oath. We're soliciting them to do something to violate his oath, and they won't tell us what the oath is. The Sanders talks about compound crimes, that you have to allege the elements of the various aspects of a compound crime. It's not just the controlled substance case. Sanders. The prosecution conceded that the felony murder count was also defective because all it said was you committed felony murder in the course of an armed robbery. You didn't allege the armed robbery sufficiently. And, and I was worried that the prosecution conceded and that was it. But no, Justice Bethel said, and appropriately so. They were right in conceding because even that count of the indictment was defective. Both the felony murder for not alleging the, the, the compound nature of the crime, you got to allege, prove both of it. Um, and the fact that the oath isn't provided at all. And of course, the other part of, of, of um, Sanders shows the level of detail. And, and listen, if you want a list of, of, of special demurs, I can send you a supplemental list in five minutes because we're dealing with the same issue in the, in the Cop City case. And there's just dozens of cases in the Georgia Court of Appeals, which have held that the defendant is entitled to know what you're going to prove at trial. Otherwise, we can't prepare a defense. I still don't know. I, I know I said that he shouldn't stand up and tell us what the Constitution was. Maybe informally after court today, he'll tell me. And at least we'll know then if you don't grant the special demur. But it, the, the law requires, respectfully, that you grant a special demur and say, what was the oath and why, what clause of the Constitution, assuming it's the Constitution, was your oath, what clause in the Constitution do you claim it violated? Was it Article 2, Section 1 that Mr. Gillen talked about this morning? Was it the Equal Protection Clause, due process, whatever? It's not to violate a Georgia statute, because I can't find that anywhere. So if he was asking the, the, the four of them, or however many people in the count of the indictment, asking them to shoot someone, it wouldn't even be a violation of their oath of office because legislators, apparently their oath doesn't include don't violate Georgia law, like police officers. We're entitled to a special demur, the special demur be granted. We're entitled to an indictment that is perfect. All right, thank you, Mr. Samuel. Uh, why don't we take a hard five minutes? and be back and see how much further ground we can cover. Starting to think we may need to reconvene 
and we'll see what we can do now. All right. Be back in five. All right. Back on the record. Item four, false statements and false writings. Your item, Your Honor, I have uh, more PowerPoint. Access. The argument that Mr. Samuel just made, we are attacking certain accounts of the complaint because they do not, as Georgia law requires, plead out every element of the Supreme Court. In order to withstand a demur, the state needs to plead every single element of the claim and needs to be facts sufficient to show that. With regard to 161020 counts, which is counts 4, 3, 9, 4, 13, 19, 25, and 26, the state does not do that. Um, where we start is a Haley versus state case that I talked about earlier. Uh, 161020 makes it a crime to only uh, make a false statement to government uh, within the jurisdiction of a state or local department or agency. Uh, what the Haley Court found, just as Namius wrote, is that we were to look at that statute and just say that it had those two simple requirements, that it just said that the defendant must knowingly and willfully make a statement, and that the false statement must in fact be within the matter of the jurisdiction of a state department or local agency that that would be unconstitutional. It would be unconstitutional because the second element, the false statement must be made in a manner within the jurisdiction, also has to be made knowingly and willfully. And uh, Justice uh, Namius went through great lengths to say that were it otherwise, uh, the statute would be uh, unconstitutional. And the court was very concerned about it, so it narrowly read, and I think did a lot to try to help the statute. Uh, but they said, you know, if a person making a false statement need have no knowledge of intent, any kind that his deceptive statement will come to the attention of a government agency within the authority to act upon it, then the basic due process notion of fair notice would be in doubt. And 161020 would criminalize a wide array of statements that would have all, always been deemed at least legally, doesn't have to be morally, at least legally innocent. And the state would be, and the statute would be a trap for the unwary. And so in trying to rectify the First Amendment and due process concerns. So Mr. Nolitz, I, I do remember the Haley case yes. and, and the issues uh, that were raised there. And so jump into the heart of it. Yep. Um, if, if I remember, actually, the language in Haley spells out what was charged. And it says, and it says that it was uh, sufficient, right? Um, so sure, it, it read in in an interpretation, interpretative way, an extra element, but did it require or create a pleading requirement? 
and how so? The answer to that question is yes, it did create a pleading requirement. What Haley was doing, it was a statutory interpretation. They were going at the statute head on and saying, listen, the statute is unconstitutional. Justice Namius was going to read it in a constitutional way. And so he said, he said to avoid the constitutional problems that he was concerned about, and they're long, and then footnote one, which is in my uh, presentation, but you can also read it, talks about some of the absurdities. He said to avoid these absurd and patently unconstitutional result, the court imposed requirement on 161020's jurisdictional. And what he said is he said, we conclude that a false statement when properly construed to require, to require that the defendant make the false statement with knowledge and intent that it may come within the jurisdiction of a state or local agency is constitutional. And he said, accordingly, we hold that 161020 requires proof that one defendant knowingly and willfully made a false statement and two, that he knowingly and willfully did so within the jurisdiction of the state or local department. Those are the two elements of the crime. So that was a element uh, created uh, through that or recognized through that opinion. But generally when we're talking about whether a indictment is pleaded sufficiently, we're talking about the elements imposed by the statute. And so did Haley go so far as to say that there was a statutory element that was created? I think that what's, what Haley did, if you read it, in, in my view, he, what he did is he said, okay, listen, within the four corners of the statute, I see the word knowingly and willfully in there. And the way that the statute is written, it's kind of unclear whether that is transitive across the words that are there to get to jurisdiction. But I'm going to read it because it's so unclear. I'm going to say, yes, it does apply there. Okay, so Justice Nami said, listen, okay, there it, it says that it says knowingly and willfully made the statement and knowingly and willfully within the jurisdiction. So both of those are elements. And what we know from the cases that Mr. Samuel said, from Kimbrough, from Jackson, from all these cases is that you have to plead every element of the crime. The court has explicitly told us what those elements are, and they are not in count. And, and it's it split them up. But the language of the statute remain the same. Right. The language of the statute. But that's like my saying, and I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but, you know, I have a brown coat and tie. Brown goes to coat and brown goes to tie. The way that Justice Namius read the statute, the Supreme Court, I keep saying him, the way that the Supreme Court read the statute. You have a brown tie and a brown shirt. See, but, but is that a pleading requirement? That's, I just don't see Haley getting to that point. It's well, an interpretive Haley requirement. Haley doesn't. Haley doesn't say that that's a pleading requirement. What Haley says is that those are the elements of the crime. And then we see the other case law that says you have to plead every element of the crime. So, of course, and how do I know that's right? Because I know that's right, because just as Namias said, if you don't have to knowingly and willfully have the jurisdiction, unconstitutional. So you have to have those two elements. And when we look at the manner in which every single one of these counts is, I have an example up here, which is count 26 with regard to Mr. Cheeley, but it's the exact same language in 4-13-19-25. They break it up into three things. Number one, this says, and, I'll, and I'll, this is what it says verbatim, excuse me. And so the first part says, and the grand jury in the name in behalf of the citizens of Georgia to accuse Robert Cheeley with the offense of false statements in writing for said accused in the county 
of Fulton in the state of Georgia on or about the 30th day of December 2020, knowingly and willfully and unlawfully made at least one of the following statements and representations to members of the Georgia Senate present at the Senate Judiciary Jud a Subcommittee, colon. So what does this say? This says that he made a false statement to the Georgia Senate Subcommittee, okay? Maybe that meets element number one of Haley, knowingly made a false statement. As a little side, we know that the second part, made it to the Georgia Senate Subcommittee, is irrelevant because the Georgia Senate Subcommittee is not a agency or department of the state. The, Cape, the state concedes that in their briefing. Um, so, okay, so the first part, knowingly and willfully made a false statement. What does the second part of the stat of the count say? Well, here it goes on to say, well, this is what they did wrong. Uh, these are the false statements uh, that they uh, saw a mortar main break uh, and that they voted ballots over and over again. Again, we pointed out in our brief, um, you know, D.A. Willis has made these same comments, but has not, uh, but, but decides to prosecute Sheely for them. Uh, but in any event, those are the second part of the of what count 26 says so then we get into the last part of what count 26 says and this is the critical part with regard to haley it says said statements being within the jurisdiction and office of the georgia secretary of state and the georgia bureau of investigation departments and agencies of state government county and law enforcement agencies what those are i do not know and that would in, in and of itself require a special demur but contrary to the laws of said state for the good order peace Haley explicitly says two elements. Number one, knowingly uh, made a false statement. Number two, knowingly did so within the jurisdiction. What does this explicitly not say? It doesn't say that they knowingly and willfully did it within the jurisdiction. Now, that in and of itself warrants the dismissal of all of those counts because every element of the claim is not made. Why they did it, they had two and a half years. They either, A, didn't have the belief or the proof for it, which I don't think that they could have possibly had. And so in good faith, they didn't put it in there. But it is not in the indictment. And because it's not in the indictment, those counts fail. It's a mechanical issue, and it's an important issue because they are essential elements of the claim to make the claim constitutional. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court has told us. The only place we see knowingly and willfully at all in the statute is with regard to the first portion where it says you knowingly and willfully made it to the General Assembly, but you cannot give a fair reading of count 26 or any of these other counts to say that that phrase somehow carried forward into the rest of the paragraph. And you have a number of breaks. I, I put some grammar rules here saying that a qualifying phrase should ordinarily be given uh, as, ray, as, as modifying only the noun that immediately proceeds to it. But what do I know about this? It's an adverb, right? And when I look at the said statements being within the jurisdiction, what uh, verb would that modify? None. So it is not in there. And the it's it's just not there, so the, the count fails. Um, a couple of other statements about these claims, uh, counts 4, 25, and 26. These are, again, statements made with regard to the uh, Senate subcommittee. These statements are to a general assembly. They're protected, okay? The general assembly, and we put this in our brief, has made the conscious decision uh, 
that they are going to encourage, going back to my First Amendment argument, are going to encourage as much free speech as they possibly can to allow people to come and speak in front of them. They do not have an oath requirement. They do not have subpoena power. The, the statute that allows, uh, I think it's the Ethics Committee of the, um, of the House or Senate to go, they'd have to come to this court to get a subpoena, but, this, but the House and Senate have no other oath uh, abilities, no other subpoena abilities. As we point out in our brief in the 2021-2022 session of the General Assembly, they sought to introduce that requirement, saying that every uh, buddy that comes and speaks before any committee could be under oath. They made the conscious and uh, decision not to do that, and they do it to encourage people to go testify. I've testified down there. I've seen some nutty stuff said, and I think that they just want people to come and talk. Well, if that's their goal, and that is within the General Assembly, they are encouraging through their committee meetings and asking people to come and speak. When the executives of this state and the and the DAs of this state are coming in and prosecuting people for going in front of the General Assembly to give them statements that the General Assembly or the subcommittees are asking for, that impedes upon the power of the General Assembly, and it is without the jurisdiction of these various entities that are put in 161020. Moreover, if you look at counts 13 and 19, and this relates to the statements regarding the electors, and Mr. Samuels points this out in, uh, in one of his briefs, these cases relate to uh, statements regarding the electors. They don't plead mens rea anywhere. When Mr. Samuels made that point, the state in its brief says, aha, you know, we don't say who the statements were made to at all. We don't say who received the document, who relied upon it. And if they don't say that, then for all the reasons we just talked about with regard to the oath, that fails um, to provide adequate information with regard to the claim. And because they don't say to whom the documents were given, to whom these allegedly false statements in count 13 and 19, that's subject to a special and general demure. Uh, we've talked about it being barred by the Electoral Count Act, barred by First Amendment, and barred because, again, applying the rule of lenity and due process, Nobody, nobody ever in this state has been prosecuted for going in front of the General Assembly and telling them something in front of a committee or a subcommittee, not ever, not once in this, in this uh, state. And I don't think that the, the state can show you uh, anything to the contrary. Um, and because of that, I think that we see, and the reason you don't see that again, the First Amendment, again, because it's within the province of the General Assembly, it simply, um, it simply is inapplicable. And the state's attempt to, uh, to assert these 161020 claims fails for all these reasons, primarily because they don't plead the knowledge requirement, and then secondly, for the uh, other reasons that I've raised. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge, I'll start with Haley. Um, the indictment is not required to allege that a defendant knew that all statements would come to the attention of a covered entity. That's an evidentiary concern, not a pleading requirement. How do we know that? Because in Haley, 
I flipped the slide. Uh, Haley told us exactly what the indictment in that case alleged. It did not allege that. And if it was a pleading requirement, and if the indictment in Haley had to allege that in order to allege a crime, then the court in Haley would have dismissed the case because the indictment itself never alleged a crime in the first place. And a general demur issue can be raised at any time. So it clearly does not impose an additional pleading requirement. You have to separately plead knowing and willful as it relates to you know, knowledge that would come to the attention of someone. That is purely an evidentiary requirement that trial does not impose any additional pleading requirements. Um, it's irrelevant that the legislature is not a department or agency of state government. Haley tells us that as well. Um, simply the false statement must concern a matter within the jurisdiction of a municipal, county, or state department or agency to whom that statement is made is not relevant. And Haley, it wasn't made directly to any person. It was put on YouTube and it was put out for public consumption. And coincidentally, in this case, the legislative hearings were broadcast on YouTube as well. Um, the contention that the false statements cannot be prosecuted because the same statements were made in immunized legal uh, pleadings that's unsupported. There's no authority that legal pleadings are immune from prosecution. This was raised in the briefs. Um, to the contrary, there are specific statutes that criminalize false statements in pleadings. And we cited in our brief um, a couple of instances, such as a, an attorney being disciplined for making you know, frivolous pleadings and filings. Um, OCGA 51911 creates a civil cause of action for defamation of title involving you know, uh, uh, false pleadings, and then 1610.20.1 obviously makes it a felony offense to file false documents. So I'm not sure where this idea of immunized legal pleadings comes from, but it's not supported. Um, legislative privilege does not apply to statements made by third parties to legislators. Defendants, again, provide no authority for that um, contention. It's raised in the briefs. You look at the Constitution, the, the constitutional provision, Article 3, Section 4, Paragraph 9, that creates legislative privilege. It's very clear that it applies to members of either house, not to the general public who shows up um, and, and serves <clears throat> as a witness. Um, the fact that they're not under oath, again, is not relevant. That's a, that would create a different crime. Um, we're talking about false statements, and we've alleged the essential elements of false statements. Again, under the defendant's theory, in Haley, if that defendant had come to the legislature as a witness, and said that he you know, was the catch me killer and killed 16 people, knowing that that was gonna be broadcast live to the world, for whatever reason, he would be immune because he said it at the legislature. That doesn't make any sense. Um, there's no requirement that the accounts concerning false documents allege that they were used anywhere in particular. That's not an element of the offense. Um, in any case, we talked about how for special demur purposes, you can look at other counts of the indictment and other counts of the indictment allege where those specifically named documents were used, how they were used. Um, and this is, the, this is the citation I was looking for in the last argument. Although each kind of an indictment must be complete within itself, contain every allegation essential to constitute the crime, that applies to the offense, not the form. And the indictment is read as a whole. Special demur, of course, is a challenge to the form of the indictment. So that rule of you know, account having to be complete does not apply in the context of a special demur, only a general demur. Um, we got an argument in the pleadings that the Secretary of State and the GBI don't have jurisdiction over these false statements. That's looking at facts outside the indictment that constitutes a void speaking demur. Um, there's, again, there's no requirement, this is raised in the briefs, that the counts 
alleged defendants knew that their false statements would cause harm, not an element of the offense. No authority um, that false statements cannot apply to statements made to the federal government raising the briefs. Again, the recipient of the false statement is not an element of the offense. Um, so it doesn't matter. As long as, it, as, as, long as uh, we've alleged that it's within, in a matter within the jurisdiction of one of these agencies, and then we prove at trial that there was knowledge that it would come to their attention. Um, in any case, the indictment alleges that the false state, those, those false documents were also transmitted to state officials. Uh, and again, we got the rule of lenity argument. We saw this come up a lot in the pleadings. I think it's the first time it's come I, up. I think you handled that. I haven't seen it come up yet today in argument. And I think you've addressed the briefs. I think it right? briefly was mentioned in argument. We hear Okay. Um, and so just to highlight here, I understand that there's kind of a federal, there's a lot of federal case law that was cited in the briefs um, on this issue, but the Georgia version of rule of lenity where we see it applied over and over again um, is that it's, it's a rule of sentencing. So if you get convicted of two offenses, one provides a lesser sentence, but they're the same, you know, same act or same elements, um, you're entitled to the lesser sentence. The uh, Court of Appeals this year uh, noted that the defendant in Huber, 368 Georgia at 401, has provided no authority and we have found none for the proposition that the rule of lenity can subject uh, to demur an otherwise sufficient indictment. So our uh, position is that while there may be in, you know, the federal cases that are cited, a different application of the rule of lenity under Georgia cases, it's not a reason to dismiss the case. <laughs> Motion should be denied as to these counts. It's irrelevant uh, where or to whom the false statements were made. There's no support for this idea of immune legal pleadings. Legislative privilege only applies to legislators in a few situations, their staffers. Um, and other arguments seek to add elements that are not set forth by statute or they're simply void speaking. All right. Thank you, Mr. Wooden. Very briefly, Judge, if you're going to have to prove something at trial, it's an element of the offense. If you don't have to prove it at trial, it's not an element of the offense. Obviously, Haley said that it is an element of the offense that you knowingly and willfully do that. They don't plead that. They have no response to that. They admit they don't plead it. The claim has to go. With regard to uh, legislative um, uh, privilege, we're not arguing legislative privilege. What we are arguing is that when somebody comes and speaks in front of the legislature, we have a separation of powers problem because if they're speaking in front of the legislature, invited to do that, and somebody comes in and hits them for what they say in front of the legislature, that is an issue. And with regard to the rule of lenity, the rule of lenity, that's exactly what Haley was doing, is the rule of lenity is a rule of statutory construction. And when you're looking at these statutes, you have to interpret them in a manner that would make them constitutional. If it's ambiguous, you read them against the state. And here uh, it says you've got to have these, these two elements. One thing uh, that I would want to point out to your honor is we've seen this, um, obviously, in the Haley case and in others. In the federal context, there was a case, uh, Rahif, that talks about uh, criminalizing the possession of a firearms by, a, uh, by an illegal alien. And the Supreme Court, Bushley's and Haley, came back and said, listen, you have to have both elements have to be knowing. I have to know that I profess a, a, possess a firearm, and I have to know that I'm illegally in this country. 
Um, and those both became elements of the crimes. The United States uh, U.S. Attorney's Office have changed their pleading requirements for that and have done exactly what the state should have done here, which is a modified way that they plead these cases and what they should have pled here <clears throat> is that said statements are knowingly and willfully within the jurisdiction. That's not there. The claim fails. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Who we have for impersonating an officer? All right. Um, begin with counts eight and nine charge. Count eight charges the substantive count of impersonating an officer and employee, i.e., the electors who reportedly unlawfully falsely held them out themselves out as the duly elected and qualified presidential electors. Count nine is a conspiracy to commit officer uh, and specifically references count eight. Now, nowhere in the statute 1610.23 does it define what a public officer is. The only definition I found applicable is in the Georgia Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 1. It defines a public officer as a trustee or servant of the people, and then thus is amenable to the people at all times. Um, and as the Georgia Supreme Court said in Kennedy v. Carlton, the intent and purpose of this particular section of 1610.23 was to protect the people of the state from intimidation and other potential abuses and dangers at the hands of someone who was cloaking themselves in the authority of the state of Georgia or an officer in the state. And thus, there must be some nexus between <coughs> the public office and the alleged criminal acts. Not every criminal act committed by a public officer constitutes a violation of 1610.4. Now, Georgia law recognizes that the presidential electors perform the duties required of them by the Constitution and laws of the United States. In other words, they're not necessarily performing the duties and laws that the responsibilities have been required by the Georgia Constitution. They are acting pursuant to the US Constitution as contained in OCGA 21.2. Indeed, as cited in our, our brief, uh, representative, US Representative Caldwell remarked that, quote, the elector is a federal functionary as much as a senator or representative duties of an elector, as soon as he is chosen by the state, are prescribed by the Constitution of the United States. These electors were chosen well before the election. I think it was in March or April of, 19, of 2020. Um, they when they stepped up to fulfill their duties, whatever they did as their regular job, whether it was a state senator or any other public officer, when they were functioning as an elector, they were performing a federal function and exercising duties and responsibilities under the U.S. Constitution and the Electoral College Act. This is not a state or local government function. And this was an argument that was addressed, or was it touched on uh, it by Judge Jones in the removal action, right? And so what do you contend was the error in, in that decision? Well, the, the difference is, I, I believe, 
in the removal action, um, they said there was more to the entire case than simply what was going on as federal funding. In these particular accounts, um, we are focused in only on what they were doing as an elector and whether or not that qualified as a public officer under this criminal statute. So even you can have a situation where um, as Judge Jones holding that it wasn't subject to removal, but that does not mean they qualify as a public officer under this criminal statute. Now, the, and I don't want to cut to the chase. The federal elector, um, their status as you know, not being a Georgia public officer is analogous to a state grand juror. Uh, a state grand juror performs duties in connection with the Superior Court. They're paid for his or her time. They're serving for a designated period of time, but nonetheless, they are not a public official under this section. We cited a case of Duffy versus Perkinson, uh, 178 Georgia 230. And so what we have here is the alleged representations all pertain to a federal function made by someone who was acting in a federal capacity and they are not Georgia officers. Um, now the state cites Garrison v. State with the grand conclusion that this utterly defeats our argument. Now the Garrison case, what it addressed was the sufficiency of the evidence. And in that case, Garrison and his co-defendants, they went to steal dope from a house, kicked in the door, were wearing masks, brandishing guns, and they yelled at federal agents. In the Garrison case, there is not a citation of 1610-23. Not a discussion of it, not a citation to it. Garrison case does say he impersonated an officer, but when you dig a little deeper and you look at the indictment in the Garrison case, Are you tendering this as part of the record? Yes. An exhibit? What, look at the indictment. What, what exhibit are we tendering this as? Today would be exhibit one. All right. If you mark the, uh, All right. Any objection for the purposes of this hearing? Um, judge, again, like our prior objection, just to relevance. Um, All right. Okay. It'll be admitted for the purpose of the record uh, for this hearing only. So when you look at the actual indictment, um, the indictment that came out of Carroll County, Count eight is the impersonating an officer. Oddly enough, even that count does not cite a statute. Um, but when you look at it, it simply says that he was impersonating an officer. More specifically, he falsely held himself out to be a peace officer with an intent to mislead. Him. And when you look at the disposition, which is further back in that exhibit. Frankly, it doesn't clear, clear up what statute uh, actually charged. But I will note he received a one-year sentence, which would be consistent with a misdemeanor. And there is a misdemeanor code section that covers this, OCGA 40, Act 6, Act 395, which criminalizes impersonating a sheriff, a deputy sheriff, a state trooper, agent of the GBI, 
or an agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, police officer, or any other authorized law enforcement officer. Um, while the opinion in Garrison v. State does not clear up that uh, confusion one way or other, and frankly, nor does the indictment, um, I would suggest to the extent that the court gave any credence or precedential value to the state citation, um, look at what was actually done in that case, the most likely statute of conviction was not 161023, it was 46395. Um, and as the, so, which all, tracks back to the fact that we do not have a Georgia public office. Um, and under the ECA, as argued by Ms. Pearson and Mr. Gilman previously today, the alternate slave electors was convened. They acted to preserve the election challenge while the judicial challenge was pending. And so even if they were public officers under the statute, which they were not, then um, under the ECA, there still would not have been a conspiracy to commit an unlawful act. Because as the court noted in its ruling on the speedy, the speedy trial defendants, although you came to a completely different conclusion, in State v. Cohen, um, General Demure is appropriate when it's a conspiracy to commit a crime that in fact is not unlawful. And in this case, holding themselves out as the duly appointed and elected Republican Party electors is not in and of itself a crime. They were the Republican electors. They held themselves out as the Republican electors. Um, and as such, they do not constitute, or even admitting every fact and allegation in counts eight and nine, they still would be not guilty of this <laughs> Judge, very briefly, these defendants aren't charged with holding themselves out as Republican electors. They're charged with holding themselves out as a duly elected to qualify electors from the state of Georgia, which is a very different thing. Um, just to point that out at first. Um, again, each count. Uh, Alleges all the essential elements of the offense, provides the defendant what they must be prepared to meet the trial, provides enough detail to protect against double jeopardy. Um, Georgia case law does not, as we pointed out in our briefs, and as the other side um, tried to rebut, Georgia case law does not limit 161023 to state officers. We know that from Liberty versus the state, 346 Georgia at 420. In that case, there was a conviction upheld where they just impersonated a fictitious agency. So it wasn't even an actual public officer. It was a Metro Atlanta Human Trafficking Task Force that did not exist. And the Court of Appeals said that's fine. Um, again, Garrison, which was uh, just talked about, but <laughs> the, the case very clearly upholds the conviction where they, uh, the defendant in that case said that he is a federal agent. I mean, I'm looking at this indictment and I believe this helps our position because if you look at count eight of the indictment, uh, it the language exactly tracks 1610.23, and it says, you know, it accuses them of uh, holding themselves or stating that they were federal agents, contrary to the laws of said state. So I'm not quite sure how Garrison hurts us 
nor am I sure how the indictment in Garrison hurts us because it shows this is an indictment that alleges something very similar to our indictment um, and, and it was upheld. And notwithstanding that, presidential electors are clearly state officers. They're not federal officers. We talked about Henry Green earlier uh, this morning. Henry Green, very old case, makes it very clear that they are state officers. They are not federal officers. Um, and there are multiple statutes, Georgia statutes, that refer to the office of presidential elector. So there is some argument that you know they're like grand jurors. Well, they're not like grand jurors. There is an office. They run for office. They qualify to be on the ballot. They get paid a little bit, I think. Um, but there's at least one, two, three, four different statutes in the code that specifically refer to the office of presidential elector. So it's very clear that the, the code contemplates that they are public officers. Um, these motions should be denied. Again, the essential elements are pled, sufficient detail to survive special demur. The statute is not limited to state officers. In any case, they are state officers. Thank you, Judge. All right, just a couple of things. Um, first, Mr. Wooten is incorrect. The, elect, the electors are not elected representatives of the state of Georgia. Uh, the slate of electors are not necessarily senators. In fact, I think most of them are not elected officials. They're private citizens, usually those who are contributing or active in a particular uh, political party. Um, so the mere fact that they are an elector does not mean they are a Georgia public officer. Um, and he's again incorrect in that the slate of electors for both parties had been selected months prior <laughs> to the election. So the fact that they stood up and said, we are the Republican electors, for President Trump, if he won and if the judicial contest was successful, um, does not convert them into a Georgia public officer as defined in that criminal statute. And again, the, the point in the intent of the General Assembly in passing this statute was to protect our citizens from people that are cloaking themselves in the authority of a Georgia public officer. If you look at the almost almost all of the cases uh, involve police officers who take some action uh, that's illegal in the context of their law enforcement duties, whether it's you know, case aside, attacking some a, a female um, that they pulled over for a traffic offense, um, things such as that. They are within the cloak, within the authority of their Georgia public office. State electors, do not fall in that same category. Um, they are someone designated by a particular party to stand up and cast those electoral votes if their candidate wins. They are not necessarily Georgia senators or Georgia legislatures. And in fact, most of them were not in this case and frankly for the Biden electors. All right, moving along. Uh, forgery. And the uh, counts 10, 11, 16, 
Your Honor, counts 11 and 17, and then similarly counts 10 and 16, are um, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree uh, in violation of Code Section 16.9, Tap 1B. Um, the unlawful conspiracy involved making the certificate of votes of the 2020 electors, um, making the electoral votes and, and casting those. Um, as Ms. Pearson persuasively established earlier, the ECA does authorize and permits the alternate contingent state of electors um, to take, undertake those actions that are criminally charged in counts 11 and 17. Um, based on that argument alone, these counts are subject to demur. Additionally, the, in the state's response, what the state has said is that they are only proceeding on kind of the final prong um, of that particular statute. And in that statute, what it criminalizes in that fifth prong is that a person commits the offense of forgery in the first degree, uh, when with the intent to defraud, uh, he, makes, he or she makes, alters, and possesses a writing of a check, or, and I'm quoting, or by authority of one who did not give such authority and utters or delivers such writing, end quote. Um, a high school English teacher would blanch. If I had written a statement or a sentence like that, it makes no sense. But what we have in this case is we have the contingent alternate slave electors who held themselves out to be themselves. They were selected and identified prior to the election. Um, and they were, in fact, the Republican slave electors. They didn't hold themselves out to anything other than being that. Um, but more importantly, for purposes of the demure, um, the statute specifically says that the forgery is creation of a writing by authority of one who did not give such authority. Um, and one of the things we've said is that the indictment fails to identify who the person was who did not give the authority. Um, and with that omission, the indictment is subject to demur. Notably, the statute does not say made by one who did not have such authority. And perhaps if the statute said that, we'd be in a different position with regard to this count. But that is not what is criminalized. What is criminalized is making that writing by authority of one who did not give such authority. And so we are left to guess, and it isn't <coughs> contained in the indictment, in the preceding factual averments, who failed to give us that authority. Um, it is a gap in that charge, it is a gap in the indictment, and it subjects it to General Demira. Um, the state seemingly concedes that it doesn't, that the indictment doesn't contain the required specificity when they say, well, moreover, when the alleged deficiencies in one count, it can be read by looking at all the other counts. Now, I would suggest that Mr. Wooten has selectively utilized that. Um, when we talked about count 23, he said, well, it's not, you know, it doesn't say that in that account, but it did talk about um, sending in the electoral votes on December 14th um, in previous counts and in previous factual burdens. Um, but in this particular instance, it does not clear it up. Um, this does not say anywhere in any of the 161 counts of Bird Acts um, in any of the 41 counts of uh, charges, it does not say 
who did not give them that authority. And that is something that is specifically required by the statute. The failure to include that in the charging document requires the defense basically to guess at that and subjects this charge, um, or both of these charges, to a general error. I'm sorry, to a special error. <clears throat> Judge, I'll try to be brief. Um, First of all, the indictment does specify whose authority these documents were purported to have been made under the presidential electors of the state of Georgia. It's right there in the indictment. Um, and they allege all the essential elements. They apprise the defendant of what they must be prepared to meet, provide enough detail to protect against double jeopardy. Um, I think this was argued in the brief that we had to you know, allege forgery in one particular way, alleging that it was made, you know, the document was made by authority of one who did not give such authority was not sufficient. That was argued in the briefs, um, but I think that's kind of shifted in the argument and the defendants are acknowledging that that is a way to allege a violation of 1691. And that's the, the, the way of violating the statute that we rely on in this indictment. And that's legally sufficient. And so I'll kind of skip through examples of the other ways that it can be violated. Uh, the indictment is not required to allege that the writing was intended to defraud anyone in particular. Intent to defraud a particular person is not an element of the offense. In any case, again, read as a whole, we know that's appropriate for special demurrer purposes. Uh, it's very clear that these specific documents were intended to defraud the President of the United States Senate, Archivist, Georgia Secretary of State, and the Chief District Court Judge. Um, these motions should be denied. We plead all the essential elements, sufficient details to survive special demurrer. Um, forgery statute provides at least five ways of committing forgery and impersonating another person is not required. That was the only the briefs. Seems as though that's kind of been moved away from an argument today. Um, intent to defraud a specific person is not an LME defense. And um, those, those, that motion should be denied, Judge. Very briefly, Judge. As I've stated before, the statute says falsely makes or alters a writing by authority of one who did not give such authority. Indictment does not say who failed to give us the authority to sign that document as a Republican. We were the Republican electors. I don't know. All right, Mr. Rice, I think if you got something additional to add on, but I take your argument. All right. Uh, filing false documents. We're drawing straws. Stand on our brief. Right. Two seconds. Sure. Can we go out of order? Can we go out of order? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Would that That's be okay? Fine. Can we skip to eight while they're figuring out? Uh, I think Rico might be a, a meteor one. I want to make sure that we address uh, the discovery issues if we have to break early. So let's skip to 10. Uh, this was Mr. Sadow's motion to obtain the DC material. We'll see if we can come back to it if we've got time, but I want to make sure I address anything with discovery. 
All right. So, um, Mr. Sadov reviewed the motion. I guess my first question for you would be uh, a couple, actually. Uh, you, I think the first thing you ask is, can I ask the DC uh, district judge for permission? And uh, let's say that she says no. And then you say we should issue a subpoena. I'm wondering if the state even would have the ability or authority to, to do that over federal materials. So essentially, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there actually a legal remedy to have any of these documents? And if not, what then? Well, the answer to that is yes, there is in fact a legal remedy. And I had thought you might bring that up. So if I may, I left copies sitting over there for everybody. I'll get to that. Yeah. Well, this is an old case in the sense of being back in 1981. It's the Georgia Court of Appeals. It has not been overruled. It has not been restricted in any fashion. The Supreme Court has cited it. Uh, Supreme Court of Georgia has cited it as authority, and it makes it clear that a litigant in the position of President Trump has the ability under the compulsory process clause of the Sixth Amendment and equal provision of the Georgia Constitution to seek federal documents through a subpoena ducis tecum. That's precisely what happened in Buford. The state moved to quash the subpoena in Buford went up to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals upheld uh, the right of the defendant in that case to issue the subpoena to obtain the documents. Actually said that the TUI doctrine, as your honor would well know, doesn't even apply in the state of Georgia. We don't even have to comply with TUI. All we have to do is show under Nixon that it's relevant and material to the case in the presentation of the defense or in the uh, presentation <coughs> of witnesses. And we are entitled to it. This is why I have brought it up the way I have. So under the circumstances, and by all means, the state can take a look at it, write whatever brief it chooses to write. It won't find anything that in any way restricts this. I would issue a subpoena to both counsel for President Trump in DC, as well as the special counsel's office for disclosure of what I want. And that's why I've been very limited on this. All I'm asking for is a list of the discovery uh, so that we were able to determine what they have. And if they were to fight that, which of course the Justice Department might choose to do, um, it would come either before your honor for determination or it would come if they wanted to remove it, strangely enough, they could remove it to federal court. Strange thing on this and the reason why this is so important is if I can't get the material and you deem it relevant and material, remedy is dismissal of the case. And therefore, I'm trying to figure out a way to obtain the material that doesn't present that situation to the court, which is why I suggested that maybe the court could contact the judge in DC, or the prosecution here could contact the special counsel's office in DC, or I can issue the subpoena ducis tecum. And now what I can su suggest to the court is why it would be 
um, necessary to do so. And I have a perfect example based on what just came out about Vice President Pence. Uh, and again, I am not suggesting that the state has uh, a legal responsibility to obtain the documents that I'm looking for. It's not an arm of the prosecution and I don't have evidence. You want to say I do, but I don't have evidence to show that there has been an exchange of information with the special counsel's office in DC. Would an exchange even be enough to draw it under? Okay. Which is which is why I think the court knows me well enough from our prior dealings. I'm not going to bring something to the court's attention which doesn't have a reasonable legal basis. This would simply be the state understanding the potential repercussions of not producing the documents, uh, seeking a, a way to do it uh, with a practical means. But and, and you say it's it's Buford as the authority that says dismissal is the ultimate outcome? Or is it within Buford? It is. I'm on page, and I think it's page, uh, let's see, 768, which would be the third page of the, of the case handout at the very bottom, where it talks about what the attorney general could do if, the part, if they don't like the subpoena or don't wish to comply. Says the attorney general might appeal any adverse judicial order to the proper form, but with a trial court, without a trial court demand for the evidence, we are back where we began. And without the evidence, if it is material, the defendant ought not to be tried. And that's precisely what I'm saying here. There's no doubt that the special counsel's office in the DC prosecution has relevant and material information that deals with the allegations in this case. If you, I sent along, as the court well knows, I sent along a highlighted copy of the DC indictment. Assume that the courts had a chance to look at that. And the DC indictment in count one, which alleges a conspiracy to fraud the United States under 18 USC 371, in paragraph eight, and I'm on page three of the indictment, uh, co-conspirator one, uh, and I, I believe this is accurate, although there's not been a publication uh, other than through the media and my own investigation, but I believe when you look at the indictment, there's very little doubt that who this would be. That co-conspirator number one is Mr. Giuliani, co-conspirator number two is Mr. Eastman, co-conspirator co number three is Pal. Co-conspirator number four is Jeffrey Clark. Co-conspirator number five is uh, Mr. Chesbro, obviously all of which were indicted. And so the ultimate point is there's, it seems very clear from the DC indictment that there's a good deal of overlap. Is that fair enough? Remarkable. All right, just at a minimum. Okay, uh, so. So I know from what's just been reported, another leak that came out of DC, that for example, with uh, Vice President Pence, that he, provided notes to DC, that, that is to the special counsel's office, that he's made statements to the special counsel's office, all of which he's on our, he's on the proposed witness list in the previous case, number 135, um, which would be certainly discoverable under procedures in the state, as well as would be obtainable under the uh, uh, subpoena. And 
I'm just trying to figure out a solution to do this. This is going to take some time. My guess is the Justice Department, Special Counsel's Office, is going to fight this all the way through. Um, and as I said, I, uh, Buford might suggest the case ought not to be tried. That's one way to do it. I suggest there's other alternatives. If I can't get the information and it's about a witness, as in both cases, state can't call the witness. The third way is to wait until the DC case is completely over and then seek it in a different fashion. But this is a problem. And it's clearly information that, as you said, if you look at the two indictments, um, and, and I was gonna just mention through comparison, if you want me to do it, if not- I think you've, it speaks for itself. And then you've highlighted the portions and I've seen those. And if you need to enter that as an exhibit, we can. I'll leave open the possibility to make an exhibit. But the only thing that's not essentially in, in the DC indictment is Coffee County. Um, everything else is basically a mirror image. It includes everything about Georgia. Okay. No, I, I'm, I'll tell you the other part of this is um, that you had asked me previously about. There may be a double jeopardy motion that would fall, fall from the trial in DC before here because of the nature of the allegations. Now, I'm not saying that would work. I'm just saying that there may be something on the state double jeopardy statute, but that's not part of this. What I'm interested in now is how do I get my hands on what's clearly relevant material information? And I'm basing it on Nick's case. Uh, that's, you'll, you'll see it when you shepherdize this. It's called Dean versus the state. And Dean is at 267, 306, 1996 decision by the Georgia Supreme Court. And uh, it basically says, uh, Dean is being denied access to records for use in a criminal trial. However, in the allowance of the privilege to withhold evidence that is demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial would cut deeply into the guarantees of due process of law and gravely impair the basic function of the courts, citing U.S. versus Nixon and Buford versus the state, in which Buford says, holding that a federal regulation forbidding disclosure of departmental information must yield to a defendant's constitutional right to compulsory process. That's precisely what I'm asking for. All right. I think I understand your argument, Mr. Uh, say now. So I, I know the Buford case wasn't cited in the motion. Does the state feel prepared to respond to this today? Judge, we can uh, respond briefly. Okay. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Let's have you a name for the record. Uh, yes, sir. Donald Wakeford for the state. Um, just real quickly, Your Honor, no, we're, we're not going to provide some kind of response to a case that, that we just got, not, not suggesting it was sure. a kind of Obviously, these are, this is a preliminary just kind of exploration of where we think this might lead. Um, so, especially because there are a lot of uh, very grave consequences, which Mr. Sadow was mentioning, um, and so certainly we're not going to go uh, articulate any kind of response to anything at this, at this stage. But obviously, what this requires is some closer consideration. Um, and uh, while obviously Mr. Wade is the one who, who speaks for the team in most regards, I will say that um, this investigation, as the district attorney has made clear, is independent from the investigation or any kind of case that is anywhere else regarding defendant Trump and uh, the other defendants at the table. So um, it's sort of to the extent that it is being made our business, we intend to cooperate, but our position is quite simply that we don't have authority over the uh, over the Department of Justice, and certainly not a federal judge, 
and that at this stage there is no role for us to play absent this court uh, directing how we should move forward because we don't have anything to draw upon to, well, for the service of well, Mr. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what Mr. Sada would be asking for, and I don't think that's something I would ever tell you to do. Um, I think it's really just ball might be in your court as to item number one. You, you say it seems to me like you're making it very clear there's been uh, no, uh, obviously no coordination, but not even any kind of line of communication or sharing of any kind between uh, the Fulton County and the special counsel. But perhaps um, Mr. Sadow suggesting that it might be worth a phone call. That's not something that, that I would ever order, but might be worth it. So I think I guess we're just flagging that. And uh, probably the sooner we're able to find a road forward, the sooner we can get the discovery issues taken care of. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's anything really else for us to determine or decide today, but unless there's something else you want to add. Well, just this, this notion that if they somehow do not cooperate and comply, then our case should be dismissed based upon. I think we'd be, we'd be a long way from that. I think even Mr. Sadow concedes that. Uh, I think, at a, yeah, but it's, it's obviously something uh, that we need to be mindful of here as we make our way through discovery and, and turning it over. And maybe we'll have more enlightenment if we know what, what the special counsel's uh, position is on it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know who would they be, uh, they'd be more open to taking a phone call from. I don't know. But I'll wait for direction from the parties on that because right now uh, it was, well, the motion was to obtain access. I guess we've had a hearing as requested by the motion and we can uh, reconvene at another date to, to have an update and see where we are. And if the state wants to avail itself of position one and bring us back some more information, I guess that's their prerogative, but we don't have to. But just for clarity's sake, this, the state does not plan to take any action on, on this unless the court is ordering us to do something. We're, we're not on our volition taking any action. Okay. And in that case, would the state have a position of whether the court has requested an item two should be reaching out to the district court in DC? digest i think that that's we have to stand mute on that because that's not our business that's i think that council should probably start with issuing his subpoena and see where he how far he gets with it okay would the uh i know i think in the buford case i'm reading here that it was the state that intervened to quash uh i guess that would be something worth flagging again maybe something that the state needs more time <clears throat> to think about um would the state be intending to intervene and, and move to quash or would be waiting to see what the Department of Justice says? To, to the extent, Your Honor, that you're looking for guidance as predicated by this, the case that we were just handed right. and that was not in the motion, I, I just think we... we. I'm really just kind of more flagging issues to think through. Okay. For the next time we convene. Understood. All right. If, if yes, I sir. Might, Your Honor, what I'd like to do in the interim, and we can obviously get back together and discuss this, but I will go ahead and prepare our subpoenas uh, and maybe the next time we're here, depending on where we are, I would seek the court's permission to issue such subpoenas uh, under appropriate order. I know normally we just issue subpoenas, but I don't want Department of Justice, the special counsel's office coming in and saying, but you don't have any order that says you're allowed to issue the subpoenas. So I'll prepare them and then we'll go from there. 
All right. And let me just flag this as well, since this would, is there an issue here where this is an extraterritorial out of state subpoena where you have to go through some other process? I do not think so. I do not believe so. If the way Buford is set up, it, they've kind of said in that case, um, you know, you may have subpoenaed the wrong person. Um, maybe it would have been better if you did it to the attorney general, but you're in right to compulsory process. Now, I think what you're asking me is, do we have to do like an out-of-state witness? That's, yes, that's exactly it's right. Not a state entity, though. There's no provision. Special counsel is not in Georgia. Theoretically, I could serve the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of Georgia if it went to DOJ, but then special counsel becomes a special issue because they're different in part than DOJ, although they're under federal regulations. Or I can serve my counsel up in D.C., and they can take service and say, I'm sorry, I can't turn it over. And then you could bring them in and potentially order them to disclose it because they have it. And then DC will, then the special counsel's office sure. will come in and say, no, you can't disclose it. So, okay. I'll just get it prepared so that you at least can see. All right. There's be any more detail, though, than what I said. I'm not looking for the evidence, I'm just looking for a list so that we can begin the uh, process. Well, uh... I mean, to that end, though, <clears throat> why wouldn't you be just asking for all the evidence as well, if that's the end goal? I can't show relevance or materiality to what the specific items that I would want to have. I want to make sure that when I'm presenting it, if it's not, if it doesn't have something to do with our case or witnesses in our case, I don't want it. And I don't believe I'd be entitled to it. If it has to do with witnesses like in our case, like Department of Justice officials, Vice President Pence. Um, there was actually uh, another thing recently, Scott Perry, Representative Perry, he, some of his material was unleashed or uh, unsealed yesterday and then sealed back up again. He's a witness, 133 in our case. So I would wanna make it as specific as possible so that your honor would be in a position to be able to say, why would you want this if it has nothing to do with our case? That's All right. Okay, any, any last thoughts from the state or anything to add? Uh, no, nothing, Your Honor. No, I just wanted to. Nothing further, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, we'll put a pen in it for next time. Uh, all right. So, my thought here to best utilize the time we have remaining is that, with apologies to Ms. Palmer and Mr. Floyd, I think we have to come back on RICO. There's just always a lot to that. I think that would be, again, as much as there was with the ECA. Not something we just want to uh, jam through. So I'm thinking we could continue with uh, item seven, the filing false documents, the perjury count, and then the catch-all, whatever's left, and call it a day and come back on RICO. Because the filing false documents brings up the most exciting portion of today statutory construction. Um, and recognizing how long we've been here already, I will make this concise. Section 1610.20.1 uh, is filing a false document, and this turns on what the definition of a document is. Um, in 2014, and inserted a more expansive doc definition of document. Uh, there's basically a two-part definition of the word document. First one is the 
described on a tangible medium, uh, stored in electronic or other medium, retrievable and perceivable form. The indictment satisfies, or the elector certificate satisfies that first part. Second part is the matters. Uh, the definition goes on to say, shall include but not be limited to liens, encumbrances, documents of title, instruments relating to security interest in or title to real or personal property, or other record statements or representations of backlog. Now, beyond dispute that the first part of that definition of the second part, the first part of the second prong, liens, encumbrances, documents, title, instruments, that does all relate to security instruments. Um, so the issue then is, does the trailing word, other records, expand the scope of this statute beyond what was previously listed? And the answer to that, Your Honor, is no. Um, if you follow the case, the Georgia Supreme Court case of Kinslow or the U.S. Supreme Court case of Yates versus United States, as a matter of statutory construction. Um, so I'm remembering this one, obviously, from the from the order. Why does the shell include but shall not be limited to language not override? And, and that, uh, this very easy way to distinguish Yates. Because, Judge, when it says shall include but not be limited to, it is then listing everything starting with the liens and comforts. Um, it is not, if it said it applies to liens and comforts, et cetera, but also additional elements, then yes, that would be fine. Um, but the shall include but not be limited to begins the illustrative uh, list of potential types of documents. And when you're looking at those lists, the trailing word, the final little segment of other record statements and representations, um, that cannot be interpreted under Yates or Kinslow to expand it beyond what the preceding words is. Because when the court is construing the statute, they must give effect and meaning to all the words in the statute. And if we interpreted that other records part of the definition in the manner that the state suggests, and frankly, in the manner that you ruled on the speedy trial defendants, then it swallows and subsumes everything that preceded. Um, and we cannot interpret it, both the Georgia Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court has made it clear that we cannot interpret a statute in a manner that does that. We cannot take that trailing word that basically makes everything prior to it in that illustrative list, surplusage or redundant. And with the construction that you gave it in your order on uh, a speedy trial defense, that's effectively what you've done. Um, liens, encumbrances, et cetera, has no meaning. All they needed to say was other records. But when they said other records, they are essentially trying to catch in any permutations of those preceding terms. Um, and, and frankly, when you look at the amendment, um, House Bill 985, it specifically says, change provisions relating to false filing, false liens or encumbrances, it's public for definition to expand the protection against filing of false liens or documents to all citizens, provide for exceptions, dot, 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 dot. It did not explode or expand 
the definition of document in a way that created much broader application than what that section had been targeted to prior to 214 and targeted to after 214. Um, and indeed, the bill itself was also titled, It Leans and Covers. Um, and it is a matter of constitutional law in the state of Georgia that you cannot pass a bill um, with provisions that aren't indicated in the title of the act. Um, as the Georgia Supreme Court said in Mead Court, the purpose of the constitutional revision requiring that the act's title must alert the reader to the matters contained in this body is to protect against surprise legislation. And if this court were to interpret that other records part of the definition in the way that it did with the speedy trial defendants, then that's what we have. We have a surprise list. We have surprise legislation and we have surprise criminalization. Is the case you cited on uh, an act's title, is that a situation where because of a defective bill title that, tell me more about that case. How did, how, what, what actual effect did that have if a bill's title was insufficient? What it said was you, similar to this, what we're trying to do in this case, the, the bill's title constrains, you know, the application and effect of the statute. Um, you cannot title something indicating, you know, one thing and then interpret the language of the statute above and beyond and in great expanse of what's indicated. So it's essentially, you know, words of limitation. All right. So while you're up, why don't we do uh, perjury as well? Um, Judge, that is very brief. In the you, you, you just say that the state hasn't outlined why it's material. Yeah. The, their allegation in the, in the account <clears throat> is that effectively it comes down to the statements are material to the statements. Um, and while an indictment to survive a special demure doesn't need to contain a full you know, detailed argument and exposition of what the materiality is, it does have to include some indication of materiality. Material because the statements are material to themselves. And that's really what that count boils down to. That's what the state has tried to do. And that's what their argument has suggested. So just how would you suggest like a hypothetical indictment would show that materiality? I mean, doesn't something speak for itself when they're saying that someone's testimony could have influenced the grand jury and that's always going to be material if the grand jury decided to believe that person's testimony? Every false statement under oath does not constitute perjury. Uh, and under that kind of general scenario that you just painted, every false statement would constitute perjury because you could say, well... They testified before the grand special grand jury. Right. They said something false. So it's, so it's an issue of circumstances and fact. And again, it doesn't have to be incredibly detailed, but there has to be something more than what we have in this indictment, which is the statements are material to themselves, you know, to the content of the statements. Um, you know, it, it requires more than that. All right, Judge, hopefully I'll take us home with this. So the final false documents counts 
looking through this. Again, each of them allege all the essential elements. They uh, allege enough to survive a special demur. Documents and issues are documents. Um, the document defines documents as, among other things, information that is inscribed on a tangible medium. As the court pointed out, the shall include but not be limited to language. Um, well, they do acknowledge it. In their, they do acknowledge this provision. The argument was kind of avoided in the briefing. Um, but again, information means words. Inscribed on it means written on. Tangible medium is paper. These are documents. Um, going to the, the, the 2014 change, the General Assembly again specifically expanded the applicability of 1620.1 in 2014. Um, but Prior to 2014, the statute only criminalized filing false liens and encumbrances against public employees that largely tracked 18 U.S.C. 1521. House Bill 985, uh, as the defense pointed out, signed into law, made it a crime to file any false document in any public record or court of Georgia or the United States. Um, and the 2014 amendment did add a broad definition for the word document. Um, it means information inscribed on a tangible medium, all these other things shall not be limited to, shall include, but not be limited to the liens and promises. That doesn't exclude, or that doesn't limit uh, that list or things like it. It just gives examples. I can't get into the mind of the legislature, but I would imagine this is just so that kind of the original iteration of the statute kind of carried through. I don't know why they left that there, but it doesn't change the fact that any information inscribed on a tangible medium is a document. <clears throat> um, the argument about the title not matching the contents, that's with regard to the title of the bill, not the title of the statute once it's been enacted. So House Bill 985's title was, I won't read the whole thing, but a bill to be enacted, or a bill to be entitled an act to amend this uh, section of the code to do X, Y, Z, and the bill did amend that section of the code to do X, Y, Z. So there's not an unconstitutional variance in the name of the bill and what the bill did. Um, I think the defense is confusing the name of a bill with the uh, name of a statute. And we know from case law that the heading, title or heading of a statute really doesn't mean anything. That comes from Marta versus McCain, 135 Georgia Ave, 460, 1975 case. I don't even think that the titles of the statutes are, are created by the legislature. I think that's created by the people who put the law the books and then distribute them out to lawyers like us. Um, again, just hitting some of the other arguments, they said that there's no allegation of what was filed by whom or whether it was in a pleading or attached as an exhibit. Those are not elements of the offenses in general. And again, taking a step further, these are attempt and conspiracy to commit filing false documents. So even more so not elements of the offense of those offenses. In any case, the indictment does specify what the document was. It was a document titled Certificate of the Votes of the 2020 Electors from Georgia. It specified who did something with it. Um, it said that uh, Schaefer, Still and Latham placed that document in, into the United States mail, sent it off to the chief judge of the Northern District of Georgia. Um, the defendants again attempt to add additional elements to the offense. It's not an element of the offense that the false document's material to anything. It's not an element of the offense that the false document's placed in the record in any particular way. Those simply aren't pleading requirements in this case. Motion as to those counts should be denied. Essential elements are pled. There's enough to survive special demur. The documents are documents. 
Um, the remaining arguments seek to add elements to the offense that are just not part of the statute. Finally, the perjury argument, I'm a little bit confused by it, um, but it alleges enough to, it, it alleges the essential elements, it alleges enough to survive special demur. Uh, the defense says that it fails to allege materiality. Um, the indictment specifically alleges that the false statements were material to the accused's own involvement in the December 14th, 2020 meeting of Trump presidential elected nominees in Georgia and to the accused communications with others involved in said meeting the issues in question. So it identifies exactly why they're material. Um, he didn't lie about what color shirt he was wearing. He lied about something that was an issue in question before the special purpose grand jury. That is sufficient to withstand demur. And uh, also they cited some cases concerning sufficiency of the evidence at trial. Again, as we've discussed, that's entirely different than the pleading requirement. Um, for those reasons, Judge, you should deny these motions. I think that takes us to the end. Maybe. Maybe. I think we still had uh, requests to also address other discovery or motions issues and just other general housekeeping. So uh, op open it up to the floor on that. If anyone wants to jump up first. John, if you want me to go to the podium or is this so can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Thank you, Mr. Tano. I understand that Madam Court Reporter is working as hard as she possibly can with all, everything that's going on here. But I'd like to see if we can figure out a way that we can assist her in potentially getting transcripts done. She's got a load that she carries is worse than anybody. And we're trying to work with her and she's been very kind in saying to us that you know she's getting around to getting them done. I'm hoping maybe we can figure out a solution that can get them done a little faster. Well, on that point, uh, Mr. Sadow, um, we've been looking into this as well. You know, on, on the front end, I'll say one of the reasons that we record every word is I'm gonna be rewatching this. And, and I would think that you could also rewatch it. And, and hear what you need to. And if it's not an evidentiary hearing, I don't know if a transcript would be as necessary. We're just, it's just argument here. Um, logistically though, uh, I did, we'd explored whether if there's a way to expedite transcripts, could the issue was I, we can't outsource that. No matter how much money you offer, we can't outsource it. Ms. Smith has to do that. And in the meantime, we also have trials. We're starting one on Monday. So that's why I'm most concerned, for example, obviously you're correct about everything that's been said in watching the videos of the YouTube um, taping. I'm most concerned about the pleas of co-defendants because if I understand correctly, we can't get the exhibits until yeah. those exhibits are made part of the transcript. That kind of a you know sure. chicken and an egg. And those those aren't long proceedings. And so those I will uh, we'll see what we can do to place those at the top of the priority list. Uh, but these longer argument hearings, I wouldn't expect to see transcripts on those uh, expedited. If there's you know an interlocutory that we have to start talking about, then obviously that would I would imagine be part of the record. Um, We'll just have to go through that case by case. But if there's a specific aspect you're saying you you absolutely need, we'll keep seeing what we can do. But I just don't think logistically it's even. Let's stay on the yeah. as far as being able to get transcripts right. of the of pleas and exhibits to go with. All right. Any anyone else on that issue? Okay. 
All right, opening the floor again to just anything else in general. Judge, just one clarification on the supplemental briefs. Um, given that we've covered a lot of ground today, is the court willing to allow us to take up any of the matters? I mean, obviously not to be you know, repeating things that we've already argued, but just to supplement any of the arguments on any of those issues, we'd request that we be allowed to do that in our supplemental briefs. So, you know, I think the most effective way in a supplemental brief is to say something new. Uh, but if there's a, a point you think there's a new way to say it, have at it. Okay, thank you, That's Judge. fine. Your Honor, uh, Harry McDougal for Mr. Clark, since you've opened the floor, I will take the opportunity to say that we will be following in Mr. Sadow's footsteps with respect to discovery of information in the hands of the federal government that we think is relevant to our defense. And we will be fine preparing something uh, to reflect that uh, shortly. All right, so noted. So is there any indication when the court is um, planning to have the uh, RICO arguments? Well, I was going to probably follow that up when we see everyone's schedules, which I don't think we want to pull out our calendars here. I think that's something we can take up through email. And if we can get them this month, I know the week of the 18th, uh, I've, it's kind of just been a catch-all hearings. We got, I've got trial weeks next week and the week following. And then the week of the 18th is a lot of hearings. So that'd probably be where I'd start asking everyone if we can get the RICO arguments in. What's the starting point? Of uh, the week of the 18th. <clears throat> I'm going to. Then we can take it up from there on availability. Anything else? Okay. All right. Not seeing anything. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.